Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9 a.m. on Cork's Red FM. And a very good morning to you. This is Mick Mulcahy. Half of Irish do not want black people coming here. A stark headline in one of the morning papers. Anonymity in replies revealing hidden prejudices. Half of Irish people say they don't really want black people coming here. A startling survey has revealed. According to research published by the ESRI today, when Irish people are asked directly about their views on black people coming to Ireland, 66% are in support. However, if their answers can remain anonymous, that drops to 51%. A similar trend is found when people were asked about Muslims coming to Ireland, where support drops from 59 to 53%, uh, depending on whether the respondent can remain anonymous or not. And the study was by the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission and the Economic and Social Research Institute, the ESRI, and it surveyed just over 1,600 people during June and July 2017. That's a stark headline there. Um, you might have seen on telly last night uh, things hotting up in the hunt for Madeleine McCann, dead or alive, but cops and dogs searching a German allotment. Maddie the Dig is the big headline today. Uh, in the uh, Sun, Madeleine McCann cops yesterday began digging up an allotment linked to prime suspect Christian Brokner. And going to the Times, the UK edition, the second wave has started in Europe, warns Boris Johnson. More countries are facing quarantine restrictions. Travellers to Belgium, Luxembourg and Croatia face quarantine measures on their return to the UK as the government seeks to guard against rising levels of coronavirus in Europe. Boris Johnson said the continent was beginning to suffer a second wave of the pandemic and ministers were prepared to take such action where it's necessary. Over the summer, quarantine for arrivals from Luxembourg and Belgium could begin as soon as tomorrow and ministers are keeping a close eye on Croatia, but restrictions are not expected imminently. That's from the UK edition of The Times. A winner is coming. Game of Thrones has been voted the greatest TV show of the 21st century. The US fantasy HBO drama, which lasted for eight series, Beat shows such as Stranger Things and Doctor Who to second and third spot. So well done to Game of Thrones. Ministers digging in over wages and allowance, says the Independent Today front page. And we'll be covering this in more detail uh, during the programme. Of course, we had the uh, Minister for um, Public Expenditure on yesterday. But the Taoiseach and his ministers have decided to dig in and hold on to massive taxpayer-funded salaries, even though they're higher than those paid to the last government. The optics here is that they're taking a 10% pay cut across the board, uh, but because of measures such as the Haddington Road Agreement uh, now coming into play, they're actually going to have about 50 grand more between them. Now, not each or anything like that, but 50 grand more, about 1,500 more for the T-shirt per year, 30 quid a week, and about for the uh, top ministers, about 1,000 a year, 20 quid a week. Uh, But 50 grand in total more than the last government. So that would kind of render the 10% as a kind of a stunt, a political, optical Uh, illusion, I suppose. But Mr. Martin also revealed the so-called pay cut will not affect ministerial pension contributions. Nope. They'll be calculated based on the original rate of pay. And when you're at the top table, the most important thing, of course, besides public service, is the pension. The Taoiseach's pension will still be based on the full 207,590 euros salary on offer for the role of Taoiseach rather than the new reduced rate he'll be taking. It comes as three super junior ministers at the centre of a controversy over a salary top-up agreed to gift the allowance back to the state. That might seem a little misleading now. They didn't gift the 16,000 each back to the state. What they said is to avoid the political furore, 
they'll split the 32,000 that was uh, legally entitled to them, as precedents would have decreed, uh, and they'll get about 11,000 each now. Uh, you know, this kind of harps back to 2017 when Fianna Fáil were against the 16 grand being given to somebody else, and Mary Mitchell O'Connor says, look, I don't want the political hassle, I'll just forego it. Um, and they seem to have forgotten that they were against this uh, as they implemented now. Meanwhile, it can be revealed that the Secretary General at the Department of the Taoiseach, Martin Fraser, intervened to ensure Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney retained his state car and guarded driver at a cost of 200,000 a year or 1 million euros uh, over the proposed course of this government. And I'm sure Mr Coveney would argue that as the, you know, the principal in, uh, minister involved in Brexit, he's got a lot of travel uh, up to the north, etc., and needs the security and all that kind of thing. I'm more kind of interested in how... Uh, a civil servant could uh, ensure with, with a phone call uh, to a senior Garda officer that this cover would be ongoing and not taken from him as he uh, stepped down from the position of Tornishta. Um This, uh, you know, in fairness to Enda Kenny, uh, back when he was Taoiseach, he did uh, kind of wipe out the car entitlement for many, many ministers. So that's, uh, that was a government decision, and now it seems that a civil servant has made a phone call uh, in contravention of this government decision. I'd love to explore that a little more, but Mr. Coveney... Uh, keeps his car, uh, at least for the moment. Only close contacts of school COVID-19 cases will be notified. Parents may receive limited information about a COVID-19 case at a school, with the emphasis put on those in close contact with an infected person. This is the independent front page. Schools will not have to automatically disclose if there's a confirmed case and will be advised by the HSC of the appropriate action to take. Maddie cops are digging up an allotment, says the mirror front page. Uh, Paysayers slam cuts. TD's salary reduction phony. Mike Michal Martin has defended government officials' salaries uh, at, um, after it emerged they would make more than their predecessors despite a 10% cut. Front, uh, Sorry, not uh, the front page, but in the sun this morning. The pay cut announced will be backdated to when the government was formed, but we'll see all cabinet ministers and junior ministers earn more than their former colleagues. So they are taking a cut, but they're still making more than the uh, people that came before them were making. Cabinet new perks dispute. It's uh, everywhere. This is the front page of the Mail. The government was engulfed in further controversy last night over a special arrangement to let Simon Coveney keep a €200,000 a year state car along with guarded drivers. It has emerged that the cabinet was bypassed when this decision was made. State cars with guarded drivers should only be allowed for the Taoiseach, the Taunish and the Justice Minister, according to a government decision taken in 2011. And that was led by Enda Kenny. However, Foreign Affairs Minister Mr Coveney has managed to hang on to his despite his recent demotion from Tonishta, and this happened without Cabinet approval. Labour leader Alan Kelly has now demanded Taoiseach Michal Martin clarify who made the decision. I've just told you, it was a civil servant who rang a senior member of Angarda Shiakona. Why was all this decided orally without any paper or decision trail? And going to the Echo front page, over 48,000 no-shows. Patients are skipping hospital appointments. Close to 50,000 appointments were missed at Cork hospitals last year. A situation labelled a perennial problem and a waste of time and resources by a city-based doctor. He didn't tell us this yesterday when we spoke to him on the air, but Sinn Féin TD is suing Joe Duffy. A lawsuit over comments made on a live line election show, and Joe Duffy and Donica O'Leary, the Sinn Féin TD in question, are pictured on the front page of the Star. And Ireland is now closed for business, says Aer Lingus' CEO, Sean Doyle. Aer Lingus chief Sean Doyle has said, Ireland stands alone in Europe when it comes to travel restrictions imposed because of coronavirus. Mr Doyle said the pandemic has had a catastrophic effect on the airline industry and Ireland has been effectively closed off 
to business. The government published a green list of countries and areas last week that are safe to travel to and from, but people are still being told to avoid non-essential travel, indeed being scared out of it too in some cases, uh, in case you might lose your PUP payment. The list excludes Britain, the US and popular holiday destinations for Irish holidaymakers such as Spain and the 15 approved areas, if you haven't heard them already, are Malta, Finland, Norway, Italy, Hungary, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Cyprus, Slovakia, Greece, Greenland, Gibraltar, Monaco and San Marino. And Mr Doyle told the Doyle COVID-19 committee that the pandemic had been catastrophic for the airline industry. It's just turning a quarter past nine on the Neil Prendeville Show. The Neil Prendeville Show. With Tesco. Save time and shop online. Simply log on to tesco.ie. And to our phone lines we go, and to a potential tragedy averted. Two hypothermic men without life jackets have been brought to safety by the R, uh, not by the RNLI, but we do have John Mathers, uh, who's the volunteer press officer at the RNLI, uh, to speak to us. And indeed, John, the uh, the person here who's being held a hero uh, is one of your former colleagues. Morning, John. Uh, good morning, Nick. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing there? Uh, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Yeah, so now a former RNLI uh, crew member has been praised for his seamanship and first aid skills after bringing two men found about a mile and a half to two miles from shore and without life jackets to safety. This is Angus O'Donovan. He was returning to Crosshaven in his trawler on Tuesday afternoon when he spotted two men in what was described as a supermarket inflatable boat. Can you tell us the yeah. story? Yeah, well, actually, we've just kind of summed it up in, in one there. There was uh, these two gentlemen were were very luckily spotted by Angus and his uh, crewmate as they were returning to Crosshaven from the fishing grounds. They were moderately hypothermic when, when they were pulled from the, from the water uh, and uh, the lifeboat was uh, informed then to arrange for first responders to meet the, uh, the trawler when it docked into Crosshaven. Um, that's really the story at the end of the day. Hello, John? Yes. Sorry, it's, 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 it's not a great line. Uh, oh, so, so, so the RNLI weren't involved directly and didn't need to deploy to pick up these men. They were probably deemed to be safer in the warmth of a trawler cockpit or a, a trawler wheelhouse. Uh, well, then, we, we, yeah. we, we took our lead from Angus after mm-hmm. he picked the two, two guys up. Um, he rang our Deputy Launch Authority and he and the DLA decided that perhaps... It was as quick for Angus to come straight into the lifeboat station with his trawler than it is to mobilise and launch the sure. lifeboat to sure. go and meet up with them. So it was a, it was a, a good call. Okay. Uh, it's been loosely described as a supermarket inflatable. Can you describe the craft that they were on? Uh, I believe it's 1.6 metre um, dinghy. 1.6? That's about five feet. Yeah, yeah, that's about it. For two people? Yes. Yes, when they were when they were found, Angus tells me that one one man was paddling ferociously, and the other man was uh, frantically pumping the tubes to keep the air in the system. Okay, and do you know what happened? There's reports that they lost a, a paddle or something. Yeah, they they lost one of their paddles, um, and it, basically what happened was they went too far offshore. There was an offshore wind which was blowing them offshore. There was a two to three knot ebb tide, which was blowing them west at the same time. So they were in a very dangerous position. Very dangerous position. Do you know what beach they started from? Uh, Roberts Cove, I understand. Okay. okay, and once you get out there, you're into it, because it's quite sheltered in Roberts Cove. 
uh, quite sheltered as well from an offshore breeze because it's facing south. And, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, the, the, the tide that's sweeping around from Roaches Point on the ebb uh, that takes all water west, of course. Uh, just, just to explain to people that when, when the tide is coming in, it'll come east around the old head of Kinsale. And when it's ebbing for six, five or six hours, it's going to go west along around the okay. old head of Kinsale. So it's sweeping them outwards and down towards the old head. Uh, and and in a, in a probably look these inflatable toys I suppose are very good for uh, the beach and where you can actually stand up if anything goes wrong but not for not for outside of any harbour by any stretch yeah, of the imagination. I, I think I think that's fair to say they they are not well, any of these inflatable toys whether it's from a high low to a, to to one of these um, boat thingies is really they're not meant for the sea. They really are meant for swimming pools and environments paddling and supervised. Mm-hmm. Have you guys been busy this year so far? There's not been. Uh, I mean, there's been less boating because people had less access to the the water and less access to their boats. No, we, we've actually been very quiet this year, Mick, um, because of the virus and because of people not using their boats. Uh, we're probably we're probably down six seventy eight percent on our normal call out rate. Yeah, you're, you're, you're the one guy, set, set of people, I suppose, that like not being so busy as against a traditional business. Uh, if you're not busy, people are staying safer, I suppose. That's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct, yeah. Now, we, we, we also, you know, it's also to do with the sea safety message that, that we're putting out um, all the time. Pe- people take this on board and it's having an effect. Okay. Let's mention the first responders. They were Dr. L- Larry Martin. Three of his mm-hmm. first responders as well were Alan Venner, Georgina Keating and Jenna O'Shea. They took That's control. Uh, but of course, Angus has to be commended because he knew what to do. He knew who to call. Um, he yeah. tackled the hypothermia as, as he was on the way in and the men were advised to go to hospital. Uh, but the Crosshaven yeah. Ornelai lifeboat station posted they declined uh, and the station arranged a taxi for them after they'd been warmed up sufficiently to, uh, sufficiently to leave on aid and the inflatable was destroyed at the station. Um, is that standard practice? Something that puts people's life in danger be destroyed? Uh, <laughs> I'm sure uh, they wanted to see the back of it anyway, John. I, I think they wanted to see the back of it as well. Yes, indeed. Yeah, the, 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 the hero of the moment is Angus O'Donovan and his crewmate Matty. They they were brilliant. Okay. Um, if it wasn't for them, that's these, Matthew Byrne. Guys could have been a serious tragedy. Yeah, so well done, Matthew Byrne, as well. Uh, yes, indeed. So suitably chastened, uh, the, the, the two left. Is, is there any penalties for doing that? I mean, it is naive. It was unfortunate. I mean, no, no, no harm was intended. They didn't do anything yeah, wrong. Of course but, not. Of but course not. I think no, they realised, no. maybe they had a brush with their own mortality. They realised how close they actually I think, came. I think they started to realise it by the time they spent an hour in the station warming up that... Uh, uh, the danger they were they were actually in as the time went on, they started to realise how, how dangerous it was. Okay, well, we salute all of your efforts. Uh, you know, all the fundraising for the Arnolite, something I always support personally as a sea user. Uh, but of course, the hero of the moment here is Angus O'Donovan, returning to Crosshaven in his trawler and to his crewmate Matthew Byrne. Uh, well done to all for a story that ended well. Thanks, John. Indeed. Cheers. Bye bye. John Mathers, uh, volunteer press officer at Crosshaven RNLI. Talk to Neil Printerville now. 1851 04106. Red FM. Coming up on 25 past nine, and let's go to line six and Helena. Hi, Helena. Hi, good morning, Mick. No, you had a bit of an incident regarding being harassed for not having a mask on entering a shop at a popular beach in East Cork. Let's leave the location at that and the name of the shop at that. Will we tell me what happened? Yes, yeah, so actually I was quite appalled um, on Monday evening. I was just going to get an ice cream for myself um, and 
the minute I entered, the man behind the counter, he's actually the owner of the shop, and he approached me in rage now, as in shouting aggressively, demanding me to put on the mask, um, not even giving me a chance to speak, like in my face, shouting, saying, where's your mask? You know, you can't come in without a mask. It's 50 cent if you want to buy a mask. Um, so when I actually explained calmly that I am exempt from wearing a mask due to a medical condition and that I was advised by my doctor not to wear one, even for a short period. And he just rudely demanded, show, show me your documents. Like, I, I, to be honest, I was just so taken back. I was in shock because, first of all, he was just so aggressive towards me and, you know, ill-treatment. And then to be asking and demanding to show me documents of proof. Yeah, of by, by, by what right does the shopkeeper have uh, to uh, ask you to disclose any medical or personal information? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's complete violation of my, my privacy rights. And by law, I'm not actually obliged to disclose that. And By law, you're well, not obliged to wear a mask either. You're only morally obliged to do it. You've been asked to do it by the government, but there's no law. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's yet. not mandatory. Like, no, it's not, no. It's not, it, it's not as if I'm, I'm not wearing it for that or just because I'm above the law. Like, it's a genuine you know, valid reason why I don't have to wear a mask and, you know, just to be attacked verbally. Um, I just felt the need to share that because I was really taken back. Now, there are numerous reasons people can't wear masks and, like, we we shouldn't have to be shamed and blamed and, and attacked verbally just because you're not wearing a mask. Like, I just, I just think business owners and people in general just need to be more cognizant of the fact that just because you're not wearing a mask you know, there, there could be an underlying reason and the fact that it's not actually mandatory. Mm. Yes, it's, um, it, 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 yeah. it's probably uh, severely discriminative for, for that person to shout at you. Number one, to approach oh. you. Number two, to be shouting. Um, because if you're shouting, you're expelling all sorts of uh, droplets of liquid and uh, and he could be putting you at risk. Was he wearing a mask? Oh, he was wearing a mask. He was wearing one, okay. He was wearing a mask, yeah. But it was just his manner, I suppose, like I, I just wasn't expecting it and... You know, I mean, you can't treat customers like that. Virus or no virus, mask or no mask, like you, you that's just ill treatment of customers. And, you know, like my, my question in my head was, I suppose I, I'm fairly thick skinned in the sense that I actually was able to kind of calmly stand up for myself um, and not let it affect me as much. But I mean, you know, imagine if I was an elderly person on my own or if I, you know, if I had a psychological disorder and... I mean, any 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 weakness or anything. Like, I mean, for somebody to be just attacking you, like, there's a way to talk to people. Um, especially in this day and age, like I understand people are on edge and you know fear is going around the place. But at the end of the day, we're human. Like, and you can't just attack someone like that. Just to be more mindful that people have personal and medical conditions that, first of all, they don't have to disclose. Um, but they shouldn't. We shouldn't have to feel like that going into a shop. Yeah. Uh, just to get an ice cream of a sunny Sunday or a sunny Monday, like yeah, I imagine you let him hang on to his ice cream, did you? Oh yeah, God, no, <laughs> I won't be going back into that shop again, and um, that's for sure. But I suppose really, it's just you know how many more people does that man, that owner of the business, like how many more people did he attack? Mm-hmm. Is my question because when I actually was coming past the shop um, on the way home, I actually saw another man leaving the shop. Um, I actually said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to park over here now and I'm going to just see, because he had no mask on either. And he went in and straight away he was back out again and he actually had his eyes rolled up to heaven. So in my head I was thinking, geez, I, I, he I must have done the was, same. He must have done the same. Like it, was, it, it must have just scared him, like, because he attacked, I mean, harassed now proper hands actions, like, get out of my shop. Like, he even stated that to me. 
you know, when wow. I said that I actually don't have to show anything and I was really calm. I, I, I would imagine I the, the couple of shops I've been in, supermarket or, you know, convenience stores over the last few days, uh, I think, I'm thinking that the compliance to the request by the government uh, for wearing masks is slightly north of 50%. Uh, maybe, certainly not under 50%, but it's certainly not much higher than 50%. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's up to each individual at the end of the day, and I just think, you know, if you want to wear a mask, like, and if you have your mask on, then shouldn't you be protected? Like, so don't be giving out to someone else. Do you know that kind of way? I mean, mm-hmm. people just need to mind their own business as well to a certain extent, and, like, you know, just be cognizant of the fact that just because people aren't wearing a mask, it's not because we're above the law. There, there, are, many, there are many reasons why people are either uncomfortable or unable to wear a mask, uh, you know, there could it could be a trauma issue, it could be a breathing issue, uh, and many, many more. Absolutely, yeah. So, oh, absolutely, there are numerous valid reasons. Like, and you know, you, you don't have to disclose anything to anybody, especially to a stranger who is verbally attacking you. Like, you don't have any right to, mm-hmm. you know, to ask for a document. Like, just people just need to be aware of that, whether it's. Business owners, they're just people in general. So I, I just felt the need to come on and just highlight that. Yeah. If anything, okay. because can, can I recommend a good comedy piece? I'd love to play it here here on air, but there's so many expletives in it. Uh, it would just be beep beep beep. Uh, but Jonathan Pye, P I E, uh, he's a kind of his name is Tom Watson. Actually, he's a fake news reporter. Uh, he pretends to be doing a, a piece to camera, then he goes off into a rant, which is the comedy piece, and then he and then he pretends that he's going back on air. I said, well. If you need advice about wearing masks, he's got a fantastic one about wearing masks he released about two or three days ago. So look up Jonathan Pye face masks uh, and get a look at it from the English perspective. Um, he, he's at, of course, he's advocating with all his expletives to wear a mask. Uh, but Jonathan Pye face masks is, is the one. Uh, but well done, you didn't get the ice cream. And I wonder, is anybody else getting that sort of hassle uh, when they go into shops? Uh, I didn't get any hassle. Uh, I forgot to wear a mask, uh, bring a mask last night. I was only in the shop to get pay for diesel or something. And uh, it's right at the door anyway, and there was nothing said. But you would be conscious. Uh, oh, Christ, I forgot the mask again, you know. Mm. Okay, Joan in Glasheen called Helena and she uh, to say she accidentally forgot to wear her mask in the supermarket the other day. She felt like she'd stolen something in the shop. She was getting such bad looks. She had to get up and leave as her anxiety was so bad. She thinks children as young as five, though, should be wearing masks also. Uh, if everyone else has to wear them, it's ridiculous. Carry on. And Margaret in Muscree Estate called to say that she's refusing to wear a mask anywhere she goes. She doesn't have respiratory issues. issues. She just thinks the whole thing is a farce. Making masks compulsory now, she says, is like asking a pregnant woman to take the morning after pill four months into her pregnancy. It's pointless. She loved Jonathan Pye. She looks at him. Uh, and one more. Hi, Mick. It's a joke. Wearing face masks is nothing, only a money-making racket for retailers and helping the government to spread their agenda of fear. The only thing that's going to stop COVID-19 is keeping our distance, coughing or sneezing into our sleeves and washing our hands. And they're piling in now. Not everyone can wear masks and mask Nazis should look after themselves and leave others to their own devices. I, for one, find masks very restrictive. It makes my breathing more difficult, being a chronic asthmatic. The new rules put in place uh, do not suit every person, says another texter. I'm already suffering with a high level of anxiety due to COVID and my breathing issues combined, so I don't wear a mask. And when I do go shopping, I go off-peak and shop alone. I take every precaution, but I live in fear on a daily basis, says John from Cove. So you're not alone. People are afraid to wear masks, unable to wear masks, in anxiety wearing masks. And people are happily wearing masks, I suppose. I'd say somewhere between 50 and 60% compliance with the government request. Um, but 
look, you're going to get shopkeepers like that, I guess. I just wonder how much business that guy's doing. Mm, yeah, I suppose it's just good to to talk about it and, you know, good to spread the word. And hopefully that, you know, if he's listening, that he might actually realise that, oh, God, maybe I was a bit too much. And just to be more understanding, mm-hmm. if anything. Okay. Thanks a million, Helena. Thank you, thank you. Nice. All the best, bye-bye. You can call us on 1850-104-106, text 0868-104-106 or email neil at redfm.ie. Uh, a text from yesterday, it's a pretty long one. Uh, I can only assume this was written on a computer. It's uh, more like an email than a text, but here we go. The Haddington Road Agreement ensures that their salaries are in effect going up despite the taken 10% announced uh, decrease. This is a lie, and the net effect means their salaries are actually increasing by a few percent. It's farcical, this whole government thing. They're in a bubble, and they obviously are so incompetent. Eamon Ryan has no interest in the public's welfare. This is shocking. We're a small country, says Shona. Uh, hi, Mick. I'm a widow with a 16-year-old son. I receive €245 euro a week to support both of us. That's €12,740 a year. And then I hear about junior ministers getting a 16000 a year pay rise. How can I become a, uh, how can I become a minister? Because there's no fairness in this country, says uh, Maria. And just on the freedoms to travel, this will be deemed an interference with the Constitution. This police state Fianna Fáil are creating will cause a civil war, ironically enough, and at trenches will be Sinn Féin gunning for the blood. It's an amazing how the 33-year rule within the universe is repeating itself in due course, 99 years after the first government. Uh, says a texture. Okay, why is uh, Mr. Coveney allowed to keep gar- uh, waste guarder resources by keeping guarded drivers and escorts despite his demotion? What have the government done for the seasonal workers? Says another texture. And when I hear the government officials saying they are spending billions to help the con- get the country running again, it's taxpayers' money at the end of the day. Uh, it's taxpayers who pay it back in the end, says Tony and Douglas. Uh, a couple more, Mick. What about people going abroad on holidays and coming straight back to work without quarantine? Putting all their work colleagues at risk. And the problem fundamentally is the Doyle institution and their autonomy and powers once elected. The current institution used democratic means to get them elected. And once elected, uh, they spin the anarchist dictator wheel of power uh, once the daily front door closes. If people focus on reform on the legal side of things, the powers of the Oireachtas and direct reform of them, this crap wouldn't be allowed to happen. It's only right that this is reformed as it is formed by the people. Now, families of special needs children say they are struggling at the moment, especially with the long-term closure of the QDS Vickers Road facility. The site closed in March in line with COVID regulations and clients of the service have travelled daily as far away as uh, coming in from as far away as Mallow and travelling to Mallow for uh, other support services. No parents have had respite in the past five months and uh, we have people struggling uh, because of the closure of uh, QDS on Vickers Road. And Seamus Whelan is across the story and joins me in studio. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Okay, tell us all about this. This this really is hitting and tugging at the heartstrings of people. But at the other side of it, there are parents who are probably at their wit's end. Well, yes, I took a call yesterday from Pat O'Mahony, and I think he's due uh, online there um, after me. Um, Pat uh, is very concerned with the um, situation on Vic- in Vickers Road, the uh, the day service there were up to 150 people attend the site uh, daily. Um, as you correctly said, they closed in in March due to COVID regulations. But Pat is finding it very difficult, and as some of the other parents as well are get- finding it very difficult to get answers as to what is happening with the Vickers Road site, whether it's going to reopen or whether it's going to remain closed. There's rumours out there that it's 
it's been sold for housing, sold for a supermarket, and they're just finding it very hard to get answers from the Cope Foundation who run the, the, the centre. Okay, and we, of course, are trying to get answers as well. And to that end, let's talk to Pat and he, let him bring us up to speed. Pat O'Mahony, good morning. How are you? I'm good. Now, you, you are in favour of the special needs children and their families getting some answers here. Um, do, you, do you think this closure of the QDS and Vickers Road uh, has been made an opportunistic uh, you know, thing to, to sell the land and, and move on to different things? Well, that's what it looks like to us, you know. Uh, we have before it was closing down, you know. But I mean, like you take it where like children like my daughter, right, have gone from 40 hours a week and up to yesterday we got told that they'd only be getting five hours, you know, three hours one day and two hours another day. And they have to go in town or walk around or meet the library, you know. This, like, this is a radical change for your daughter. She's been attending Cope since she was four years of age. That's 31 that's right, years yeah. now. Yeah. And then, and then she is kind of adhering and enjoying a certain routine, I imagine. Her, her routine was huge that time, you know. she got get up in the morning, she'd, it was like to her, it was her job. She went to work, she met her friends, she did whatever, she walked to the kitchen two days a week, you know. And she enjoyed it immensely, you know. I know it's just cut, like we, uh, she was cut to, uh, in fairness to the staff out there, they were doing video calls, you know, once or twice a week. Uh, from what we gather now from yesterday, the video calls are stopped. They're gone, and they'll, there's a girl who's been appointed will take her off for two or three hours uh, on a Friday and two hours on a Tuesday. She won't get to see her friends that she knows. You know, her routine is totally gone. Her lifestyle is is nothing. You know, she's a whole over us. She we've noticed in the past month she's become aggressive. You know, with frustration and everything. Uh, we've been on the court and all we're getting is nothing, you know. We've been told who's who's responsible for this restriction in services, the reduction in facilities and services? You know, let's follow the money backwards here and find out who made this decision. Well, this is it. Like, no one's telling us anything. We're dealing with um, staff, you know, and the manager out in um, QDS, Paul Ryan. And they're only telling us in fairness to them what they know, you know. Um, well, we, Cope have said, Pat, and I'm happy to tell you that they're, they're about to issue a statement later today uh, on their plan right. to reopen their services from mid-August. Now, that would lead me to believe that, you know, it's COVID restrictions perhaps that are, you know, causing this reduction well, in services. Yeah. And I don't yeah, want to be openly critical of Cope or anyone who's trying to provide these no, very valuable no. services, but let's get a clear picture as to where they intend to go with yeah. it. Well, this is it, like, you know, uh, for parents of children like my daughter, you know, we, we, you know, all we're looking for is answers, you know. Tell us the truth. If it's gone, it's gone. If it's not, it's not, you know. But we're, we're, we're just being told they don't know, you know, no one knows what's happening. We understand about the COVID situation, you know, and we want safety for all our children, you know. Mm. But, like, and... The, all we're hearing is about schools opening up. The government are putting 400 million into the schools. You know, uh, the minister for these people, you know, we've heard nothing from them. Uh, there's no one saying that they're going to help. Like, I, I was talking to one person in Corp, and they said they put it to the HSC for funding for a heater out there, and they've heard nothing. You know, mm. so it's just like, it, it's the same story. Like, since our daughter was born, 
we have to fight hard for everything that she needs, you know. And it's it's just not on, like, you know, it's just ridiculous what's going on with these children, you know. And, and of course, li- life is hard enough even if you have these services because you, you still have a huge responsibility, but the lack of routine is now having a very bad effect on her. Huge, and even one of her friends, uh, who's a lovely girl, uh, her mother was telling us that she's gotten very aggressive, you know, and it's affecting, I'm sure it's affecting all children like like my daughter with special needs, you know. I mean, all, all we want is a bit of clarity. Tell us what's happening so we can come up with a plan. Is, is that physically you know? aggressive, verbally aggressive? Uh a little bit uh, of both. Another, it could be both. I know, but yeah. my daughter, it, it's probably aggressive. Okay, you know, it's out of frustration, I imagine, and yeah, not it, not understanding like, what's happening. Yeah, this is like our our worst is with my daughter is when it's raining. She because we take her out for a walk, you know, we take her to the shop, and you know that kind of pacifies her for a while. But when it's raining, you know, she gets very very depressed about it, you know, because she can't go out, you know, and she doesn't understand then what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's hard, like, you know, uh, not, not only for us, like, I've always said, we're lucky my daughter can walk and she can talk to us, you know. There are a huge amount of parents out there who are in worse situation than we are, you know. And I just think, like, our government needs to be doing something. I mean, all, as I said, we're only hearing about getting the schools reopened. Like, these, these people from what we can see from the government is that they just forget about them, you know? They're forgotten. Push them to one side, they're okay. Okay, no, no, no news of the reopening of QDS as yet. Uh, so we are hoping to get something on that a little later today. Yeah, uh, well, hopefully, yeah. And, and you were saying that there's one COPE employee to be assigned to the north side to give parents a break for a yeah. few hours a week. And that's going to be... Right, yeah. but that one uh, person is going to be dealing between 12 clients. Yeah, she rang us yesterday. And she's, in fairness, she's a lovely woman. She's coming to collect her daughter. They'll travel on public transport. They'll go in town, you know, for a couple of hours and come home. And that's the new plan now, you know, for twice a week. Sure. I suppose we have to understand as well that people providing these close contact services have been necessarily restricted from providing them because of government guidelines and trying to, to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, yeah. Like, we understand. Like, if we, if we were told today that QDS is opening, you know, We'd be happy. We'd know that our daughter, you know, we could try and explain to her, you know, that in time she will be going back to work, you know. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we're we're getting nothing. All we're getting is that uh, they're on about some heater, you know. All we're getting is that uh, due to COVID-19, you know. And when you compile it all together, then, you know, like they sent us a letter, you know, about services, you know, and it's just, reading it to me it's like staff have been redeployed elsewhere and everything seems like it's not opening yeah it seems like it and there have been rumours about housing or supermarkets or whatever going on the the supermarket or it's been sold for redevelopment for houses and you know so you know we just don't know what's happening Okay, so yeah. your, your daughter's gone from five days a week in Vickers Road in Turkey to spending most of her day sitting in the front garden chatting to the few people that pass and who stopped yes. to, uh, to talk to her. So you need some clarity. Anyway, Coper's saying that they are to issue a statement later today uh, on their plan to reopen the services from mid-August. Well, hopefully it'll be good news. All right. Thanks, Pat. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. Pat O'Mahony there, and thanks to Seamus Whelan for uh, opening that uh, topic. And we do have a statement just coming in now. 
the power of live radio, COVID-19 and day service provision. Are you still there, Pat? Are you gone? Oh, he's gone. Okay, I'll read it for him anyway. Hopefully he's listening. Management and staff at Cope Foundation are acutely aware that people are feeling the strain of the last five months. This has been such a trying time for everyone and we are especially concerned about the way in which the crisis has negatively affected people we support and their families. A dedicated specialist team in Cope Foundation has been working hard on the phased reopening and reconfiguration of services impacted by COVID-19. We're also working closely with the HSE local teams on these plans. Over the past number of weeks, we have partially resumed over half of our day services with more planned resumptions in the coming weeks. We're currently providing outreach stroke home-based supports to many people across Cork City and County who are in critical need. We recognise that people need more and we are working on the plan to increase the level of support to people as soon as it's safe to do so. Uh, Every person we support is important to us, but COVID-19 means the level of service in each setting has to change to keep the people we support safe. Some of our day services, such as QDS on Vickers Road, will be different to what they were pre-COVID-19. Due to social distancing and other public health advice, the numbers of people who can safely attend many of our day centres has to be significantly reduced. We're working closely with families to arrange for as much face-to-face support as possible, with the day service supplemented with other forms of transport, such as outreach, telephone, online, etc. We've made a commitment to contact every person we support in our day services and or their family by mid-August to communicate exactly what level of support will be in place for September. This approach will be constantly reviewed as we uh, live alongside COVID-19 in the months ahead. We ask for people's patience and understanding as we communicate these plans to those directly affected over the coming weeks. Our goal is to provide more certainty. We are doing everything we possibly can to provide the best and safest service to people we support. Nothing could have prepared us for the situation that we all faced together. Equally, nothing could have prepared us for the determination, resilience and innovation we have witnessed on the part of our staff, the people we support and their families. We are asking people to contact their local day service manager if they have particular concerns or needs and we will do our absolute best to support you. Now, that's a pretty long but very comprehensive statement uh, from COPE. It does mention QDS on Vickers Road. Some of our day services, such as QDS on Vickers Road, will be different to what they were pre-COVID-19. Due to social distancing and many other health uh, and other public health advice, the numbers of people who can safely attend many of our day centres has to be significantly reduced. So I think that's kind of obvious to anyone uh, who understands that the social distancing and COVID-19 restrictions uh, on contact, etc., especially close contact, are going to be with us for some time. Uh, but they are saying services, some of our day services, such as QDS on Vickers Road, will be different. Uh, that's not saying they're selling it for a supermarket or they're selling it for housing. It's giving me the tacit, uh, at least reading through the lines here, uh, though not saying it directly, uh, this is giving me the impression that QDS is staying with COPE and staying open to provide the services it did. And that's just my personal reading of it. Some of our daycare services, such as QDS on Vickers Road, will be different to what they were pre-COVID-19. Is that saying it's staying open? I think it is. I could be wrong. Uh, but if so, uh, perhaps they could clarify that they are going to provide and clarify directly that they are going to continue with their services at QDS on Vickers Road, so that at least Pat may tell his daughter, you'll be going back to the routine that you were used to and that you came to love over 31 years. But there we have it, the COVID-19 and day service provision statement from COPE. The Neil Prenderville Show on Twitter at Neil Red FM.
And a very good morning to you from the Neil Prandeville Show coming up on uh, eight and a half minutes to ten o'clock. Good morning, Melissa. Hi, how are you? Good. Now, you have a child who's vulnerable medically. Yes, yes. Okay, so, he, um, so, so something small can turn to something nasty very quickly here. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So she's got a syndrome called CDLS, so there's only 26 of those in Ireland, 26 children in Ireland with that. And she can get a cold and that will turn into a flu, but that will actually go from a cold into pneumonia for her. So she's been in the hospital on oxygen. She'll, you know, she can get really sick really quickly. Okay, so she has a kind of a low immune system then? Yes, yeah. Okay. So, so what's... we really do have to keep an eye on her and just make sure that she's okay all the time. Um, either she gets a temperature, you just have to make sure it's not turning into something else. So it's, she's on in the winter time. So from August on to March, she'll be on preventative antibiotics. So three times a week, she'll have an antibiotic to make sure she does get sick, that her body is able to fight it. Okay, parents' anxiety levels are high at this time. Yours must be really, really amplified. Yeah, um, really, it's high at this moment in time because we have isolated since March. Now, I've been to the doctors in March to get iron injections. That was the only time I left the house. Um, she hasn't left the house to go anywhere else. Um, we have six other children. They haven't gone anywhere else. So we are really putting her first and foremost. We have to put her first and foremost. Okay, and the other so kids understand, all, I imagine, yeah? They do. They're, under, they're very good with her, to be honest with you, and they understand that. No, the eldest is 17, so he understands that as well. So that means he worries as well about going back to school. Okay. It, it comes back to them as well. They're, they're going to worry about going back to school as well. So the point I wanted to make was she depends on us to keep her safe. And we're doing that because we're keeping away from the house. We're doing all of this. But when it comes to going back to school, we're going to have, it's actually not just two schools we have to deal with. We've got to deal with three because we've got a secondary school and two primary schools because she goes to her sister and herself go to one, and her brother and her sister go to another one. How many children are there? Six, is it? Seven? We've got seven. seven. Okay, so you have six other risk factors to take into account. Yeah, we have to worry about all of them. So not only, and there's over 1,200 children in the secondary school. So I'm now relying on over 1,000 families to go along and do the right thing. So my daughter is safe in one particular school, and then you're looking at another 1,000 between the other two schools. And, and will your daughter be podded, if you like, uh, with other vulnerable children, or will that affect her ability to learn? Not, I don't know. You see, I haven't got anything from the school. No, they are fantastic, and I'm assuming that they'd take all that into consideration. So when she knows what's happening, I'm, I'm assuming she'll phone us. Um, she has she shares an SNA with another girl, but I don't know if there are any other children like that. Obviously, I don't know the information about the other children, but I'm not too sure. So when the principal knows, I suppose she'll come back to us. Yeah, I, I mean, mo- most schools are very good if, if a child has, for instance, a nut allergy or something. You know, the, the, the parents' committees and all of the, the notes that come out via the kids' school bags or whatever to parents are really, really vocal about saying you cannot have anything that contains nuts or traces of nuts because of this uh, allergy. So, you know, I suppose once the school understands, and they probably do already, the vulnerability your daughter is uh, suffering from, they, they should put adequate measures in place, wouldn't you think? I would hope so, yes. And I know that she's fantastic, actually, the principal and when is, is a fantastic school. So I, I know that Susan will do everything in her best power to do everything for us. Okay. But, of course, she has to take every other student into account as well. You know, it's not just my daughter there, so I know that she's taken everybody else into account as well. Okay. On a sample of one, I'd love to hear how they interact with you and how things are going uh, so will you, will you keep in touch with the programme on that? Because 
it, it, it really will be indicative of, of, of the care that's taken by the government down to the school, down to the board of management or whatever to protect this little girl. Exactly, yeah. It's okay. just that I just don't want children like my daughter to fall between the cracks because everybody else is going to be taken care of and I just don't want her to be falling between the cracks. Okay, I understand. Perfect. Okay, Melissa, thanks very much. Thank you. I, I need to take one more call before we go and I want to take that with John. Good morning, John. Good morning, Mick. How are you? Good. I've got a couple of minutes. Your son has autism and has not been given a place at school. That's correct, yeah. Um, we've applied to several different schools um, ever since his diagnosis because we look forward. Um, he was in early intervention in St. Brendan's for two years, so we knew that wouldn't last forever, obviously, and that he needed to be further educated. So uh, we've applied over two years ago to seven different schools, and we've still got nothing. And, and why is this? Uh, and his office and... What, why the, doesn't the state have a duty of care to your son? Well, that's that's the thing. Like my son is on board, but so unfortunately, he, he can't speak for himself. So it's it's our up to job you. to do it for him. No, it's on the proclamation. It, it states that the right to education is given to every kid. No, we just seem to be left behind. As in homeschooling is all they're offering. No, I know it's something, but our son is intelligent enough. Why he needs a social interaction yeah. with other kids in order to bring him along his personality. Um, and that's been failed to be looked after. So what sort of homeschooling are they offering? Just basically someone to pop by every couple of, for a couple of hours every week. Every week or every day? Was, every week? Yeah, well, a couple of days during the week. Yeah, while he languages at home with no social connection to people of his own age, his peers. Exactly. And the difficulty here is autism and sensory issues. He won't listen to anyone in his own environment he just keep doing his routine and his own thing you know mm-hmm. like going to school in the morning he lights up he runs in he can't wait because he gets to interact with other kids who have the same energy in him and I running and, I, I have to leave there John but listen thanks for coming on We, ho- we ho- I hope you've struck a chord with somebody out there who can give us some information on why children such as your son with autism are, you know, are not availing or not being allowed to avail of their constitutional right to social interaction in a school well, I'd ask anyone out there, any principal that's listening, that if they have a case, to please contact us. And I'd also like to thank Thomas Gould, who took the time to bring me back last night. So you're, you're on the north uh, side, yeah? Yeah. How, how old is your son? He's five, actually. He's five. Okay. John, got to leave it there, but look, we've, we've got it out there. Let's hope we get a response, all right? Okay. Thank Thanks, John. Thank, thank you very much. Talk to Neil Printerville now. 1851-04106. Red FM. Six minutes past ten. Interesting piece in the news there about the vintners wanting people to be able to sit at the bar. It's an intrinsic part uh, of having a pint. Whatever about if you're having food, you've got to sit away from the bar. Fair enough. Uh, I was in a bar in uh, in, uh, Bishopstown yesterday, not for alcohol, uh, because I was driving, but just to catch up with a cup of coffee and a bit of lunch with my old pal Gareth O'Callaghan. And uh, we were sitting quite near the door where there is is kind of a receptacle place where you can say, please wait here until you're seated. Uh, and so people were coming in, they were being seated, etc. And this guy walked in and he had a Northern Ireland accent uh, and he was looking for a couple of beers. I'm just going to sit outside and have a couple of beers, please. No, 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 you can't do that, they said. And quite rightly so under the regulations. They are being uh, adhered to. You have to order food to get alcohol. You can sit inside or outside, but you have to order food to get alcohol. And this guy said he could not believe it. He said, this is the first bar I've been in since I came down from Northern Ireland. I'm down here to work. I'm an essential service provider. Uh, and I'm on a day off and I can sit outside any bar in Northern Ireland and have a beer. 
without having food. So it just goes to show you the two things that are happening quite differently in different parts of the country. Uh, but how food can protect you from COVID-19, sitting in a beer garden, having a beer, uh, when, as Michael Healy Ray said, a cheese sandwich uh, can protect you when not having one won't. It just beggars belief. I just wonder, could the bars open for the August weekend? They've lost enough uh, under these kind of restrictions that you can serve in a beer garden if social distancing is uh, observed. But probably I'll draw criticism for that. Anyway, your calls and comments are welcome on the programme on one eight five zero one zero four one zero six. You can text 0868-104-106 or email neil at redfm.ie. The Neil Prenderville Show. With Tesco. Save time and shop online. Simply log on to tesco.ie. And by text, make I empathise with all these teachers, but I know for a fact that a lot of these teachers are hoping for another lockdown. Can you explain to me all the recent complaining by them since the new guidelines were announced? Going on saying they don't have enough time to get ready. They have a month. Tell them get up off their backsides and get organised. They have had six months off as well. Not to forget to start making plans. My 99-year-old mother is more active than half of them. Uh, and and the others are in her nursing home as well. They have no excuse not to be organised. It's the laziest profession in history. Uh, anti-teacher there from Jim in Douglas. And Graham, good morning to you. Hello, Graham. Hi, how are we doing? Hi. Uh, you're, you're on about wearing masks and mask deniers. Uh, I am. Um, well, basically, look, uh, when you're, your speaker said, oh, how can someone refuse to um, let me in if you don't wear a mask? Because they have a right to refuse service, anybody, as long as it's not on grounds of discrimination. And those, that discrimination legislation makes no mention of masks. Mm. So they do have the right to refuse service if they, if they please. Now, if they feel uncomfortable uh, themselves, the have, have, they, right, have they the right to be rude and shouting? I, I get, well, of course not. That's what, that's what I said in the text when I came in to you, was just about to say there. Obviously, they have no, well, I suppose they have a right to be rude, but they shouldn't be. And it should affect, it, it should affect what kind of um, level of... Footfall they get if anybody finds out that they oh, if he's rude like like personally I'm wearing a mask anywhere I go into but if I find out they're being rude to someone if I, if I see it then I'm turning around business elsewhere, they're being yeah. rude to me or not mm-hmm. yeah of course you would and it should affect any business but I mean I would imagine anywhere if they're going to be rude about something like masks they're probably just going to be rude <laughs> yeah, but why, why why be in, in you know why, why be in front of the general public offering offering services like that if you can't you know be courteous yeah. at least I know you might have uh, the oh, yeah. shop you might have had genuine concerns. About safety, I know he might be taking the government directive or the government request as law when it's not law, but there's no need to be rude. Completely agree. Do you get no argument there? But like, even like you can do, you can ask people to put on a mask politely. I was in, uh, I was my kids yesterday went out to Mizzenhead, gorgeous day, great time. The um, lighthouse thing you have to walk through and and kind of shopping area to get go further out to the lighthouse. And um, I actually forgot my mask in the car, and just as I was walking in. One of the uh, kids um, at the door said, oh, sorry, have you got a mask? So, oh, sorry about that. Went back to my car, got my mask, put it on and walked in. <laughs> I wasn't put out. They weren't put out. It was very polite. That, I mean, and, if, if that shopkeeper had said, sorry, um, I'd prefer if you wore a mask in here. Uh, do you have one, please? If not, I'm going to have to ask you to leave because I'm uncomfortable. That would be nice. And that would be perfectly acceptable. And, well, aside from being civil and mannerly and all that kind of thing. Legal. You know, they, they are allowed refuse. It was just, that was more the point I was kind of picking up. Obviously, nobody should be rude. That goes without saying. Um, but they do have the right to refuse service if, you don't, if you're not wearing a mask. And personal, personal opinion, in a closed space like that currently, I think they should. 
Now, that's their own decision. It's not my decision. I, I mentioned um, second wave, Graham, during the week, and, and there, there were certain texts of criticism. How, you know, how dare you ramp up the anxiety and all that kind of thing. Uh, the, the second wave worry at governmental level now is palpable. Uh, you know, you've got Boris Johnson saying last night he, he's, he's fully admitting uh, that he's very worried a second wave is about to hit to you, uh, the UK. Uh, we have well, maybe he should have done his job better then. Well, that's, that's, an, that's a, an argument for a different day. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe he should have stopped that Liverpool game or Cheltenham itself. Uh, you know, that's, that's an argument for, for a different day. Uh, but, you know, we've, we've members of government coming on this program saying that, uh, you know, the bars weren't allowed to open until the 10th of August. And, and I'm not championing the, the bars to open. I mean, I, I've had a point. It, 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 it's not the biggest deal for me if, if the bars are not, but I just feel sorry for all the workers, right? But he, but he actually said that the bars didn't open so we can open the schools safely. Uh, and I, do, I wonder what the, pub, the, the publicans will think of that. I don't know, can they open the schools safely is the question. Um, to what degree, who knows at this stage, can they open them safer? And speaking as a teacher, of course they bloody can. I mean, their current plan they released on Monday is a slightly improved version of the joke they released three weeks beforehand. Um, it's basically two metres social distance unless you can't and you can't. One metre social distance unless you can't and you can't. I forget about social distancing, so and don't wear masks. Are you a now, teacher, Graham? Are you a teacher? Yeah. Oh, okay. What, what did you think of Jim's message I read out there? The laziest profession in history. Uh, what, does Jim want to come on, come on air and talk about it? <laughs> I somehow doubt it. And Jim is speaking from a position of ignorance, and that's me being about as polite as I'm going to be a coach. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, we asked him to come on, but he won't. I wonder why that is. Um... But uh, like I said, in relation, well, I'm just spending time talking about Jim. If he is, he's entitled to his silly views, but they are just that. Um, but in relation to the, to the schools opening, like I'm seeing pictures. I actually saw one on Twitter recently of uh, Jennifer Madigan and um, Leo Varadkar wearing one wearing a mask, one wearing a visor. By the way, you're meant to be wearing both. You're meant to be wearing um, both. So yeah. What what age group do you teach, Graham? Wear it properly. What right? age what age group do you teach? A secondary school teacher. Secondary school. And what so what, what interaction in, have you had from the school or from the government regarding your return to work? Uh, for the government, what they're releasing. Now, generally, you get all the leaks that are released to the independent and the times beforehand. Um, and then we just find out. That's it. We're, we're, we find out the same time as any, everybody else. Okay. But, um, and from the school itself, your employer? Well, I, I, I know um, the state is your employer, but you work in a particular yeah, place. Yeah. That place, have they been in touch with you? Uh, around the t- return to work, no. Okay. Um, I'm in. I'm in touch with them about stuff the same as I would be in touch with them during uh, any summer. Okay. Like I, I'm going. I'm going to the school tomorrow to do a few bits and that kind of stuff, and I just tell them I'm coming in. Is it okay? And I'm signing in, all that kind of business. But that would be the same. Well, other than the signing in, that would be the same as any other summer. Um, have I had any further um, contact? No, because and that's not a prison them in any way. They don't know what's happening, so they, uh, there's nothing for them to contact me about. Okay. Um, you know the clock is ticking. Yeah, like we're, we're we're in the middle of week one of four weeks. Yeah, like my students, um, according to most recent studies, are as likely to catch and spread COVID as me. Now, given their age profile, my age profile, other medical conditions aside, we're unlikely to be killed by it, obviously, or seriously affected. Yeah, but you, 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 you could spread it to, to those who will succumb to it easily. You could, you could exactly. be a spreader. Yes, and I would have family members who um, would be definitely considered far more vulnerable to it than I would be. Okay. Um, as with plenty of my students and plenty of other staff and all this thing, and the whole day is to get social distancing, none of you should be wearing masks. Yet here we are, we can't sit in the doyle because we'd be too close to each other, so we need to social distance. We need a nice cavernous room where we can all massively social distance and where we can all wear masks. That's good enough for politicians, but it's not good enough for me. Okay. Uh, my students. And, and it's obviously a very nice place to fall asleep. The Doyle mustn't be that comfortable, the seats in there. <laughs> you rarely see people sleeping uh, in the Doyle. 
No, no, no. I, I swear, I, I'm sure Jim, your girl, will probably agree. Sorry, not off in class all the time. <laughs> I gotta go. Thanks, Graham. Donald, good morning to you. Hi, Donald. Hi there. Hello. How are you? Very good. You're giving out about the texts from those refusing to wear masks. I am. Listen, can I talk about teacher bashing first, just oh. as you're on the topic? Oh, be my guest. My my mother was a primary school teacher for uh, 26 years before she retired on. Uh, health grounds. You had a principal on yesterday uh, who was talking about how it's, you know, it's it practically the national sport, and it absolutely is. I mean, look, I, I, I'm not a teacher. My mother was a teacher. I, I had some lazy teachers, but I'm, I'm looking at the logistics of what these, uh, the school principals in particular, have to manage in, in the space of a month, and you know, anybody who is, um, you know, uh, taking the Michael out of them for. Uh, complaining about this, uh, you know, farce of a, of a plan. You know, they ought to, they ought to try it themselves. And you know what? Um, I, I am uh, on on the line to you now as a result of, of a text. Uh, your one of your producers rang me back and asked, mm. would I come on and elaborate on what I on what I said? But I'm glad that your 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 teacher bashing fella isn't because uh, you know it's only the chance to spread his ignorance further. Uh, look, a, a lot of teachers are doing what they can. A lot of teachers are working in complete darkness as to what's happening. Uh, and, and, but wh- wh- where, where does the responsibility lie? Is, does it really lie now with every principal to get their sleeves rolled up and get stuck in, do screening and do sanitising stations and do all of the logistical plans and do all the pods for the younger children and all that kind of thing, all the division of the, of the playgrounds, uh, you know, that's kind of segregation that's needed and physically going to be needed. Does that all fall to the principal or does the principal call the teachers and say, look, to get this school open, I'm going to need all your help, whether you're on holidays or not? Well, look, pr- principals are, you know, they're, they're essentially um, uh, a teacher who has graduated to kind of becoming a manager of, of sorts. So, it, you know, very much they're, lead, they're leading their, their team and they're, they're the boss. But it's, it's, like, um, it's like when you have our, you know, our sports teams looking up to their, to their um, national organisations and getting no help from them. You know, as usual, um, the department are leaving the, leaving the principals in the lurch. And, you know, the principals are having to call in favours, ringing around, seeking where can I get masked because the government aren't doing the procurement and so on. So, you know, of course it's the, it's the principal's responsibility to look after their school, but I know that they will do it gladly because that, you know, that I mean, you know, te- teaching is uh, you know, it's it, like like nursing. It's a, it's a vocational profession. Ultimately, they're they're there to, um, you know, look after the, the, not just the educational needs needs of the children, but to make sure that they're safe and, of course, to look after their staff as well. And I mean, teachers teachers will tell you that, uh, particularly primary school teachers, are so vulnerable to uh, colds and flus and things because uh, infant classrooms. My mother would have just always described it as like a petri dish. You'll 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 catch absolutely everything there is going. Okay, yeah, and that's you know people say that about planes. People say that they're saying it about bars. And we can't open the bars. We can't fly in planes. We can't do this. Uh, and when do you think the government are going to go back into the door? Uh, and, and out of this cavernous, as you say, music theatre. I don't know. I, I thought it was very. The first I heard of it was um, I heard uh, I was reading Miriam Lord's column, and she was talking with the Dockland Doll, and I was waiting then to see how this was going to work out. Now, what I what I assumed was going to happen, uh, I saw um, pictures online of some councils who had moved into local sports halls and things, and they were they were uh, spaced out at. Uh, at desks and things, but you know, I've been I've been in that uh, in that theatre in the uh, 
in the convention centre and I can tell you those seats are extremely comfortable and there's nice <laughs> air conditioning down at your seats. I'm not surprised that Eamon Ryan uh, fell asleep there and he wasn't the only one either. People don't seem to be making such a big deal about Matthew McGrath. Oh, anyway. Matthew was there as well but he's, he's denying. Well, they're all denying it. They, didn't. they, they, were, just, they were just contemplating on a constitutional issue. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, I, I heard... Um, Mikey Healy Ray, as well, I have to agree with him, saying that uh, you know he thinks the INEC is a is a far better venue because, of course, there they can they can actually clear it out in space properly. It it, it can be set up as a theatre, but it doesn't have to be. So, you know, you'd you'd wonder would they you'd that's wonder a, would the government. It's a, a great venue. Happen. That's a great. Anyway, you you, you we want on, on the masks. On the masks. Yeah, um, you know, um, you were talking just before the the news there to somebody who is the parent of a child with a weak immune system. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, these kind of people are the reason that I uh, wear a mask, that I own multiple masks so that I can, you know, make sure that I always have one ready. And, you know, the the one I've worn is uh, is um, going to the wash and so on. And look, I've been in the same position as you where I, um, you know, I nipped into the shops for, for two minutes uh, without without the mask. Uh, I, you know, I took the risk. But having having forgotten to wear it once. I now I have a tape. I have it in a plastic bag, and it tapes to the back of the front door, so that I do not forget to wear it. That's and a good idea. So, absolutely. And look, um, there are people who cannot wear masks. Of course, there are. Your your caller earlier on who was um, verbally abused, but by, by a shopkeeper. And absolutely, if their if their doctor um, tells them that look, uh, they don't think it's good for this person to to wear a mask. That's fine. But, you know, I, I would agree with you that maybe about 55% of people wearing masks, 45% not, roughly. But there's no way that that entire 45% of people are people who can't wear a mask for medical reasons. Some of them are just selfish people or people who want to be people who are all about their rights but never about their responsibilities to other people uh, and all this kind of thing. And, you know, they're just, you know, it's like they always have to take the... Um, the contrarian approach and say, you know, they're not going to wear their mask. People have been talking about in terms of, um, you know, talking about oxygen levels and stuff. Well, I haven't put me here an article that I heard about last week. Dr. Matthew O'Toole from Dublin uh, put on six masks and um, hooked himself up to a machine that does his, uh, monitors his blood oxygen levels. And um, they, they were still at 98% with six masks Six masks on together. Six masks, yeah. You put a mask on over a mask, over a mask, over a mask, over a mask, over a mask. And, you know, so, yes, I'm I'm sure at that stage he was probably, um, I don't know if he he covered his nose or not. I'm sure he may have been having trouble uh, actually breathing. But the point was is that in the short time he was wearing the mask, his blood oxygen level did not deplete at all. It won't go down that Okay, well, I, I, I think what, what, what you're really saying is there's a very small percentage of people who can't wear masks, uh, yeah, and, and, and that should be respected, right. but it's not, it's not 50%. And it's those, not who, 50%. those who don't because they choose to for their rights or whatever uh, are reneging on what's really a moral obligation to wear a mask, if you can. Exactly. Look, it's, it's, the, it's the anti-vaccine thing all over again. You know, people, uh, you know, these, and these are the same people. They're, they're like, no, I'm not. There are vaccines that have done people harm, but those are the ones that were rushed out and governments uh, indemnified the, the companies, I think it was the swine flu, indemnified the companies to put them out 
early because they felt they needed uh, a thing, uh, a vaccine for the swine flu quickly to get a PR win. And, you know, it, it hurt. Uh, the, the vaccine did harm to some people. They, they were vindicated in the courts. And that is for this time, the COVID-19 vaccine is going to take some time. It's going to take time for it to be developed. And, you know, none of these things are developed overnight. And, you know, it's great. You know, there are lots Don't, of... All, all people want is clarity. Yeah. Wear, wear a mask. You know, it, it wasn't important to wear a mask in the height of the pandemic. It is now. It wasn't important to wear a mask on a bus. It is now. Uh, no, things are changing. No. You know, I, I, it, it seems to me as if the government are listening to the media output and radio and in print uh, and, and then reacting by using that as a public barometer, if you know what I mean. Well, they are. But I mean, I think my, my suspicion about the masks at the very beginning was that the wholesale suppliers of the medical masks uh, were being inundated uh, with the medical people looking for supplies. And so they didn't want the general public buying them until the people who, who needed them most yeah. could have them. But now, you know, mask making now is a, is a cottage industry. I mean, all of my masks are... They're an artistic statement as much as they are a mask. Because I've I've been online and I've bought nicely designed ones. I work in um, television and I've actually ordered one that looks like the test card on the telly, you know. <laughs> and they don't have to be ugly things. What but, TV do you work for? Uh, no, well, I'm a freelance um, TV producer and uh, uh, radio producer and that. But um, so no, no one thing in particular. But, um, uh, you know, they... I, I just thought I already I already have uh, uh, here uh, a print that I bought of, of an old fashioned TV with a, a nice colourful test card. Excellent. So look, masks, masks, mask fashion can be fun, but at least get, get, get the mask on if you can. Absolutely. Don't, don't I got to leave it there, man. There, I'm sure. Thanks a lot. Mate. Thanks a million. Cheers. Bye bye. Okay. Hi, Mick. Love on the show. Uh, just on why bars shouldn't open, and believe me, I wish they could. Is if you look at the United States for an example on how not to manage a pandemic, Texas, Florida, California, and New York, the original epicenter in the U.S., didn't open the bars, and now the other states are overtaking New York with cases and deaths. This is happening in Spain, France, Germany, and more countries around the world. So opening the bars and restaurants fully will be the cause of a second wave here too, says Declan. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Tweet the show at Neil Red FM. 104 to 106 Red FM. Now, Paul Murphy, TG, thanks for holding a good morning. No problem. Good morning. No, you're a member of RISE. It's a democratic socialist organisation in Ireland founded by yourself. Uh, founded by a whole bunch of activists oh. involved in the trade union movement and okay. the environmental movement, uh, etc. And I'm, I'm certainly one of them. Okay. Uh, I enjoyed uh, one of the guys here found something on social media. You did a kind of a piece to camera. Uh, and I watched it all yesterday and I really enjoyed it. And you were trying to get uh, a motion before the Doyle to annul the ministerial order that implemented the rule uh, about the you know, the people getting the PUP taken off them at airports. It now looks, whereas yesterday it looked like it was 120 people, it now looks like it's 2,500 people. And there's pictures now emerging on social media of social welfare inspectors mm-hmm. working in airports trying to garner this PPS information. Uh, am I correct to say that they're well entitled to ask for it but you're not obliged to give it? I don't know the answer to that question legally, actually. Um, I'll check that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, what, I mean, what, what's happening is very blatant discrimination. Um, there's ads all over the radio saying, you know, we're still in this altogether. But we're clearly not where those on the pandemic unemployment payment and those on social welfare 
are being targeted by the government, uh, by the Department of Social Protection, where if they break the travel advisory, even if they go to a green list country, which is actually in line with the travel advisory, they'll have all the removed from them. And there is no equivalent penalty. So if Billy Kelleher, the Fianna Fáil MEP, he travelled back to Dublin, he broke the quarantine rules, he still gets his salary, he still gets his expenses. If you're in receipt of the SARP uh, benefit, which is for very high earners, um, and you make the rule, lose any part of your tax benefit. And even revenue changed the rules, say tax exiles, during the time of the of the coronavirus. So it's you know, very blatant inequality and discrimination. And it also appears to have no basis uh, whatsoever for what they're they're doing to treat people in this way. Let's concentrate on those two things, Paul. Tell me about the SAR payment. That's for people who are making, is it over 175 or 75? Over 75,000. To 500,000. Tax break can get us up to 500,000 euros. It's basically designed to attract uh, highly qualified employees from from multinational corporations who were previously registered elsewhere who are assigned from abroad now to work in mm. the in the state, and it's substantial. So uh, no loss of this tax break if you break the travel restriction or the travel advisory. Exactly, and the, these people, they're, they're also in receipt of, of public funds. Do you know what I mean? That tax break is worth a lot of money to them. It can be worth well, tens of thousands of euros to them, but they don't lose any of that. Now, let's look, at, let's look at the other cohort of people. I heard one of them yesterday, I've got to be very careful here, described as Dennis O'Bribe. Uh, and I'll leave that there. But look at let, let's look at the cohort of people who, uh, let's say, enjoy the sanctuary of other states taxation-wise uh, and enjoy many, many days here, maybe 180 a year, uh, but are always cognizant that they must remain in tax exile. So they don't go over the 180. It would cost them millions or billions. So um, these guys also got a bit of a break during the pandemic. They did. Um, so this is a few months ago. Um, revenue issued guidelines to say that basically if these tax were stuck in Ireland uh, with coronavirus and the absence flights out of Ireland for a period of time, well then the revenue wouldn't count those days as part of them being in Ireland and therefore they wouldn't lose their tax exile status. So even if they clocked up more days in Ireland than they're allowed to, revenue would say, no, it's okay, you can continue not to pay tax in, in Ireland. We've stopped the think. clock for these people who are tax exiles. They're, they're, I won't call them tax evaders. They're tax avoiders, really. They're using mm-hmm. the legal loopholes not to pay their tax here. And we're giving them a break so they can stay here longer than they normally would. Yet for some people, and I know some people can abuse the system, for some people on the pandemic unemployment payment who've been working and paying taxes right up to their enforced uh, departure from their jobs and for instance let's take one cohort of those let's say hospitality workers who know they're going back on the 10th of August why should they be looking for work and why should you know who's going to give you a job for two weeks and why should they be penalized if they go on a holiday they've already paid for with their taxed earnings uh, when all of this other stuff is going on it would certainly seem like double standards Paul exactly and, and the government's in, in government's kind of making it up as they're going along to try to cover their tracks on this so one of the things they're doing is now, as you're saying, making a condition before of the pandemic unemployment payments that you're looking for work. But let's say exactly you're a hotel worker. Um, you were temporarily laid off in March or April, whenever the lockdown really began to take uh, effect. You've been on the pandemic unemployment payments uh, since and you haven't been looking for work. Um, let, let's say in a month's time, unfortunately, your hotel doesn't 
the Open, but you've worked there for 10 years or whatever. At that point in time, you'd be entitled to redundancy. Um, and the, 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 when they originally began the pandemic unemployment payment, they said you, you don't get redundancy now, but that your allowance is kind of suspended into the future. But the problem is that hotel worker is now legally obliged in order to keep getting the PUP for another job. And they find another job, and then in two months' time, the hotel doesn't reopen. At that point in time, they're no longer entitled to redundancy. A redundancy could be worth, again, it could be worth tens of thousands of euros to them, but they're not entitled to it anymore because they're not being made redundant because they're working for somewhere else. Okay. So the government's making another huge issue, which is going to have a big problem for a whole bunch of other people in trying to kind of cover up their mistakes on, on the issue of the PUP. So uh, I suppose that begs the question, are certain companies, organisations, large retail outlets using the pandemic as an opportunity to shut down, force people to look for other employment and obviate their need to pay redundancies, you know, fair redundancy to, to their former workers? <laughs> If the government didn't do what they're doing and what they did yesterday, then they wouldn't be able to get away with that. They'd still have to pay redundancy. So actually, in this case, while there definitely are companies taking advantage of the of the pandemic, like you know, Debenhams is a very classic uh, case. So there are companies doing it, but the government is currently now facilitating them in a massive way by saying to you know Debenhams workers and others. You have to be looking for another job, which if they got that other job, it would mean they'd be no longer entitled to the to the pandemic. Uh, Thanks for raising that, Paul. That, ha- that hadn't occurred to me. That's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just really outrageous. But this is part of, like, there's no what the government's been doing. I, I was talking to a guy yesterday who was stopped in the airport in May, uh, at the boarding gate by plainclothes Gary. They said they were performing an immigration check and asked for his passport. He handed over his passport. That was fine, no problem. He got on the flight, he went off for nine days, he came back. When he came back, his PUP was stopped. And when he got through to the department, the department said, well, you were on this particular flight on this date, and therefore we're stopping it. And the, the guards can't do that. The guards can't ask for information on one basis that we're doing an immigration check. Then and then pass that information on to the Department of Social Protection. That's one thing that's illegal. The second thing that's illegal is that there was no legal basis then and there still isn't a legal basis now for them to stop your pandemic unemployment payments because you're out of the country. Um, but then they've done these things, they've discriminated against people in this way. Then the government has tried to defend it on the media and then kind of retrospectively they're changing, that they're trying to change it. There's a lot of nighttime legislation change. There was one on the night. There was one on last night, I think. It's yeah, as if they're I mean, listening to media, as, as as I said it before, the news are in, uh, in, in as a public barometer and then reacting, like like changing with the wind. It, yeah, that's true. I mean, part of this comes because Leo Varadkar was on the telly on Sunday, said a bunch of things that were wrong. Then on Monday, the Department of Social Protection changed all of their description of these these, got these payments. So they added in, oh, you need to be looking for work, you can't go on holidays, which weren't previously there. Um uh, just to kind of cover up their own blushes, and then similarly they're, they're doing it with this. And obviously that's that's what happened with the, the so-called ten percent pay cut for the government ministers as well. They, you know, they, they faced a huge controversy rightly over this extra sixteen thousand euros for the super junior uh, ministers. They felt the pressure on that. Then they announced, oh, we're going to cut everyone's pay by ten percent, and they pretended that they were planning to do this for weeks. But announced this one. Obviously, it was a response. But then it also turned out that it's, it's not a pay cut. Because they had it in the road. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask you a, a direct question, Paul? Let me, let me get a bit of preamble in here. It would seem to me that, that the, uh, you know, at government level, Fine Gael accepted 
the Fianna Fáil party and the Green party uh, you know, have very little uh, cabinet experience coming to bear here. Uh, the only member of Fianna Fáil, to my knowledge, with, with, uh, with major um, ministerial experience is now the Taoiseach Michal Martin. On, in the Green Party, the only minister, the only member uh, with ministerial past experience is Eamon Ryan. Uh, and I think quite cleverly, Fianna Gael have been sitting back uh, with the benefit of their experience and letting a certain bit of naivety uh, come into play here. Uh, would that be a fair comment? I mean, look, to be fair, this government for the first month, they're a sniper's dream. Oh, I think it's been a disaster for them, no question. And I, I think Gail are allowing them to walk themselves into to controversies. Um, but I think that's actually all about they don't have their spin machine properly in place. Yet. Well, I think they've replaced spin with uh, making, it, making it a richer gravy train, it seems like. Well, normally they just they manage to cover these things up. They manage not to draw attention to them, so they're they're not spinning very well. But the fundamental policies that they're implementing are because, in my opinion, like who they represent. You know, they're attacking people on pandemic unemployment payments. They're cutting the payments. They're discriminating against them in this way. At the same time as they're paying themselves more money, they're paying the junior ministers a whole bunch of extra money. They've got a July stimulus, a large part of which is grants to big businesses some of which are treating their employer, their employees uh, atrociously at the moment. You know, and fundamentally it's because Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and now clearly the Greens, that they represent the interests of the rich, of the 1%, the big corporations uh, in this country, as opposed to the kind of people, which is ordinary people, it's one in four, one in five people in the labour force who are on the, the pandemic unemployment payment. Okay, so we're almost locked down now as a police state. And I mean that, if, that you know, for people who are on... It's now including job seekers, but on the PU payment, PUP payment as well. Uh, the Department of Social Protection now, and I'm not sure if this is a track covering exercise, says it'll consider cases where somebody has an urgent or exceptional reason to travel. I know. I mean, what what, what is this? You know, like how are they going to judge that? What legal basis are they going to say oh, this is acceptable, this isn't acceptable? Um, it's incredible. Um, but also, like, even as a deterrent measure to stop people traveling abroad. And look, I, I think people shouldn't be traveling on essential business and we should have had clear direction from the government on that and we should have had action to ensure that people could refunds. Yeah, I, I'm not for a moment, Paul, advocating that people travel, but I am yeah. trying to determine what are people's rights around travelling. Uh, you know, it, obviously don't travel unless it's essential is the advisory, uh, but you should retain the right to travel without discrimination. Yeah, and, and even actually the advice on the Department of Foreign Affairs website will tell you that you have, will advise you that it's okay to travel to green lists countries, um, which is about 10 countries they've said you can travel to and come back without quarantining. But actually, if you travel to those countries, you'll have your payments um, taken off, even though the advice says it's okay to, to well, travel well, to Well, I'm, I'm travelling to Greenland to spend 12 hours a day seeking work on my on my iPad. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I got um, a letter that some, someone got from the Department of Social Protection last week, last Tuesday or Wednesday, and they got, you know, a, a page which has, I have in front of me here, it says important information about your job seeker's benefit. And there's a bullet point that says holidays, and it says you may take up to two weeks holidays in a calendar year. You must tell us before you go. That's, so this that's, is last that's changed week. now, isn't it? it well, but, but supposedly that was changed by at the time that they had that, you know. The law had already changed in terms of social welfare, but they're sending out advice to people saying that you are able to travel, and then you could unknowingly you know, travel 
and then come back and find that your your payments have been cut altogether again without any um, sound legal basis. Mm. But it's it's no wonder then that it would seem that Fine Gael are smugly sitting back with, the, with all their experience under their belt while, you know, the new government it seems to be tacitly changing the direction of, of this whole narrative from uh, stamping out COVID-19 in a safe and effective way to making cost savings. Yeah, um, but I think Fine Gael is part of that agenda as well. I think that um, this is, I mean, I think it's part of, they're, they're planning to make substantial reductions to the amount of money they pay on the PUP. And there's different ways that they're going to do that. One is by reducing the top rate. Uh, the, the 350 rate will come down to 300 and then will come down to 250. The other is already done, which is to introduce like a secondary low rate. Mm-hmm. discriminates against certain people, the, the 203 uh, rate. But then the other thing is to target people who are on it and try to force them off it. And I think, unfortunately, what we're going to see is the same kind of demonisation of people on the PUP and social welfare that we saw under the Varadkar in the past with the whole welfare cheat, cheat us all thing. But I think the government is making an important political mistake in doing that because this isn't, you know, 5, 6, 7% of the population who are on job seekers. This is 20% of the workforce are on the PUP plus another six or seven percent who are on job seekers. So it's a big section of the population. Everybody knows people who are on the PUP. They know they're not spongers. They know they're not people who are scamming the system. So I think it, it won't go down very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I ask you just for maybe a, a personal interpretation as to where do you think these parties will all end up? I mean, the, the Green Party seem to have uh, to get to the cabinet table, have had accepted by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael what seems to me to be an unreasonable level uh, of taxation on the public and of restrictive you know, carbon taxes and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, Fianna Gael are where they are. They, they kind of sail through the pandemic. They're probably regretting not calling the election later. Um, but did strict adherence for too long to the Supply and Confidence Agreement actually waltz Fianna Fáil into the political mincer? Um. Yes, but I think the supply and confidence was more a symptom rather than the cause. In this stat, the combined votes of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael were declining dramatically. It's because they were both in power during the crisis. They both implemented the same sort of policies. And Fianna Fáil in particular lost its kind of traditional urban working class support base. So it was a sign and a reflection of the weak political establishment last time had to go confidence and supply and try and pretend that one of them when really they were in coalition now they're even weak and so they're position uh, but I, I think Fianna Fáil does face a real uh, crisis is there a space in Irish politics now for two you know, really what I would see as centre-right establishment capitalist political uh, parties um and Fianna Fáil is clearly the much weaker of the two right now. So whether Fianna Fáil ends up folding into Fianna Gael or something like that, I think they're they're open in the coming five, ten years, whatever. And the Green Party, they're, they're going to get wiped out at the next election and they can't say that they weren't warned and that they didn't have their previous experience of being in government before. Is, is the raise on debt of uh, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil and maybe even the Greens just to keep Sinn Féin out of power and keep a socialist government from, from ruling in this country? I think certainly Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, that's, they, they are you know, reflecting the interests of the establishment, looking to have stability, looking to um, avoid what they would see as instability from the point of view of the, the corporations, the high earners, etc., etc. Um, I do think that there's a very important um, lesson going to be 
you know, lots of us, again, from the experience of the Greens, which we've seen many times before, which is that if you go into coalition with Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, bye bye. You will not. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you, you won't implement. You'll go back to the Doyle next time in a taxi, the whole party. Um, yeah, look, I, I, we have to finish there, Paul, but thank you very much. It's just the optics, really. Uh, and I don't know why the, the spin doctors haven't been looking at the optics here. Uh, in that if you're responsible up to COVID-19 restriction, a responsible, hardworking taxpayer, and you now go on holiday, you might lose your PUP payment. But if you're a tax exile, revenue themselves have changed the, the rules for you to make it easier to be a tax exile. So if you're hopping back and forth between Monaco and Luxembourg or whatever, there's no punishment for you. And that's the, the kind of imbalance that needs to be redressed by this government. Yeah, I mean, they, they need now and they have the power uh, to stop it. They, they voted in the doll yesterday to not have a debate on it. They voted against an amendment from um, a number of the opposition parties, including us, to, to get rid of, of this. But they still have the power to stop it and they should suspend this power. They should refund people uh, the money that they've been um, denied um, and they should just you know, back away from this discrimination. All right, Paul, thanks very much. Paul Murphy, thank Rise TD, thank you for coming on this morning. It's a shame that the phone line was so bad and was dropping in and out because Paul has a lot to say. Uh, blatant discrimination, he said there, against members of our society. And it's good to have people like Paul to hold the government to account and it makes for good radio debate. Text the Neil Prenderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. And a very good morning to you. You. This is Mick Mulcahy. I want to squeeze in a quick uh, birthday request. Happy 40th birthday to Elaine McNamara. And that's from Dubs and Josh and Sean. So happy 40th to Elaine McNamara, uh, a regular listener to the Neil Prendival Show. To line two and Jamie Fraser. Hi, Jamie. Hi, how are you doing? Good. You're a UCC Students Union Welfare Officer. That's me, yeah. Yeah, guilty as charged. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Just to give you a proper title. But uh, you had... Quite the experience. Uh, you intervened in a suspected planned sexual assault. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so um, basically uh, Saturday night, one of me and my friends, uh, Dylan Murray, uh, went for a walk around the lock Saturday night at around 9 o'clock. Uh, basically to what we've seen was uh, a six-foot-one male with ginger hair wearing a black jacket um, dragging a girl across the lock, um, to which we kind of decided that this was not generally be normal behaviour, to which the fact that we did go intervene on that on that time, you know. And and was this girl in distress? Um, she wasn't in distress as of so, well. She wasn't. She was obviously in some personal distress, but wasn't showing it as she wasn't uh, screaming. I think she was maybe shocked in fear or something. And he was kind of just dragging her by the arm, and it was by no means playful. He had a very he had sunglasses on, but you could—he was just looking straight ahead with a with a kind of calculated manner about him um, towards walked up by the Hawthorn Bar around that side of the lock, you know. So it was uh, it wasn't playful in any sense. Okay, and was he heading for a car? Was he heading for the bushes? Was he um, basically he just headed around the corner to which yeah. um, another male about five foot eight, um, what we saw to run after the two of them. So we kind of, me and my friend thought that it was kind of um, another good, a good Samaritan move, you know, that we're like, okay, someone else is there. Um, so basically we kind of chased around the corner to which there were kind of three of them were standing there. So I questioned the man as to what was happening here and he assured me everything was okay. Um, to which the girl remained very silent and kind of looked at the floor. She was obviously quite in shock at the situation. Um, so me and my friend decided to kind of just... Um, walk a bit away but just keep a kind of eye on it and um, they kind of went back into the lock and the kind of situation furthered we kind of tailed them for about 30 minutes after that and what happened did did, did the girl walk away get some distance from them or what 
And basically what happened was the smaller male walked, they walked back into the lock and uh, the smaller male kind of sat on the floor with them um, to which the taller man actually started um, publicly, publicly urinating in the lock. Um, and we kind of realised that this is accentuating the kind of like unwarranted behaviour that was occurring. Um, to which time that girl stood up and she took her phone out of the man's pocket and kind of ran up the road towards um, towards Dorgan's Road, Glasheen Road, to which the male chased after her. So me and my friend Dylan kind of tailed the area for a bit, uh, followed on, and we asked um, the, one of the smaller males stayed behind, and I asked him what was happening, to which he said that this was just his friend and uh, his girlfriend. Um, and so I asked him what his friend's girlfriend's name was, to which he, reply, which he replied he didn't reply actually um, and said he didn't then he said he didn't know on further questioning to which he realised there was something very wrong in this situation as you know you should know your friend's girlfriend's name mm-hmm. so we followed up on the situation ran after the male um, to which we intervened in the situation where he was kind of running after her and pulling her so we intervened and she got into her accommodation which was a student accommodation so it was kind of a security gate, you know, you open with a fob. So do you, do you get the so impression that this girl knew these two guys or didn't know them? No, no, I have the impression that she did not know these two guys in the absolute slightest. Okay. No, it's just by your description. Uh, it's just as if, you know, she didn't run, she didn't scream, she, you know. She she, did, her she her phone run, was in this guy's pocket, you said? Her phone was in this guy's pocket? Her mobile phone was in that pocket, so she went and took her mobile phone out of his pocket and ran away. So they'd obviously taken the phone from her, you know? Okay. And she felt safe enough to get it in your company? Well, we were kind of away when she took the phone and kind of she ran up the road. We were about maybe 15 metres away, as I said, to which they chased her up the road, to which we, we chased after her. We chased after them. Um, and then once she, she kind of got in behind the security gate into her accommodation, so there was a gate in between her and the, the other male who we had questioned first off had, had disappeared at this stage. Um, so we kind of confronted um, the taller male and to which he started getting extremely aggressive and in my face when I asked him, started questioning him about the about the situation. Um, to which he started getting aggressive, which we then called Gary Shikara. Okay. Okay, fair play for your intervention. You may have saved something very serious for, from happening there. An assault by the lock Saturday night or what was uh, deemed to be or seemed to be. Two males, one six foot one, ginger hair, black jacket yeah. and skinny build, and the other about five foot eight, chubby build, with a tanned complexion. So watch out around yeah. the lock. Jamie Fraser, thanks very much. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. Thank Not a bother. Thank you very much. And Gardy are investigating after an 11-year-old girl was approached by a strange man who allegedly tried to lead her out of her own home to, quote, go for a walk, unquote. Officers are on the hunt after the scary incident. Uh, you'll have heard it on the Red FM News, which happened at a house near Mahon Point on Monday. Uh, this was in Jacob's Island, I think. The little girl had been playing in her front garden when she was approached by a large man who was wearing a T-shirt with a cartoon character on it. And uh, he approached her and uh, began to talk to her. He had navy tracksuit bottoms on and sandals. Luckily, her mother came out uh, and took her daughter away uh, before then bravely running after the man and snapping a picture. So hopefully the picture will be of some use to Ungarda Shiakona. The incident was reported to the guards and anyone with information is asked to get in contact with investigators at Anglesey Street 
station. A spokesman said Gardaí are investigating a suspicious approach incident that occurred at approximately 11am on the 27th of July 2020 at Jacobs Island in Black Rock. Gardaí carried out a patrol of the area after the incident was reported. No arrests were made and the investigation is ongoing. Now, we have many, many, and I mean I could keep talking for the rest of uh, my time here on the Neil Prendival Show and not get through all of the texts and emails uh, that we're getting. Uh, Good morning, Mick. It's the same old story with politicians. The fault is not with them. It's with the people of this island who put them in power. The one gripe I have is the wording of money is being given out at this time, such as the COVID payment. It should not be referred to as this. It should be named a tax rebate. After all, people receiving this money have paid their taxes. Our politicians are giving the impression that they're doing a huge favour to us since this began. Keep safe, says Mike from Mallow. Hi, Mike. I was just listening to the holiday topic. After these, uh, are these people serious that they think it's okay for people to go on holidays while they're on COVID nineteen payments and jet off abroad on holidays? I know they've lost their jobs, but they're no different from the essential workers who are working throughout the pandemic. If they took holidays, they would not be paid either. And as for the job seekers, I'd love to know how long the majority of these people are on this payment. Uh, I bet they were on it a long time before uh, COVID-19 came along. It's the likes of them that should have their payments reduced. The government should get them up off their butts and out to work. Stop letting the taxpayers pay for them. Also, just on the Christmas bonus, the working class don't get a bonus. So why should the social welfare job seekers get it uh, either? Uh, They contribute uh, nothing. Uh, we have a quick call from Tom on line four before we go for news. Hi, Tom. Hello. How are you? Good. Now, a lot of Irish people seem to be take uh, uh, seem to take being told to wear a mask as a challenge that they want to go against. It, it, they do. It, it seems to annoy them like that. Uh, that uh, that they're being told what to do. Like they don't look at it as that they're protecting themselves and, and their families. Um, I suffer from acute bronchitis. And um, I still wear a mask when I'm going. And I don't wear a mask when I'm walking along the street because I couldn't down count my breathing. Mm. But if I'm going into any building, any shop, any cafe, the library, whatever, I wear a mask. Now I take it off and I come out because they say I do have underlying conditions. Yes, you don't wear it in, in the open air, but you do wear it inside. Oh, I do, yeah. I do, yeah. Constantly, yes. Of course, everywhere I go. Um, I went into my son in law's business there now, and uh, I put on a mask before I went in there. Now, there's only, there's only one person walking there today because my son in law's on holidays. I also put on a mask before I went in there. Um, but people seem to be pugnacious about it, like as if just sticking out their faces to show I'm not wearing a mask. Yeah, so it's I, like, I like if they see, a, they see a speed limit, yeah. they'll, they'll push it a bit extra. Yeah, I tell you now, it, it, it reminds me of people coming along, regardless of how bad the road is, right? Mm-hmm. If you see a 180 kilometre speed sign, they must go that speed. That's a challenge. It's 80 out of 100. They, must, they, they, must get up to, they, they must get to where they're going as quick as possible. Thanks, thanks for the call. Appreciate it, Tom. I know it's a short one, but we've news on the way. Thank thanks you. a million. Two minutes to 11 o'clock now. <laughs> 104 to 106. Red FM. This is the Neil Frienderville Show. And in a futile effort to try and get through all of the texts that the show is generating, let's get into a couple of them now uh, before we go back to our phones. The politicians have an answer for everything, and at the end of the answer, you're none the wiser. Typical politician, says Desi. This is about the Michael McGrath interview yesterday. A great interview, Mick, with the best politician in Doyle Aaron, says Bear. Is he for real, says another texter. These gangsters from Fianna Fáil are never going to get back in with a vote from me. I'm on a five-year pay freeze, and I still have to go to work. They shouldn't be getting a pay rise in this current climate. It seems to me, though... 
that whatever spin doctors they're using, why don't they just realise that whenever they do something with pay and mishandle it, they're going to get it in the neck. Back to the text. The top two men in power had to wait until the fifth count to scrape through, and now they run the country. They're lucky the British system doesn't apply here because they'd be history, says Anthony. Are the government investigating the amount of social welfare money being Western Unioned out of Ireland? Another attack on the native Irish, says Bobby, uh, and one that's never really looked at. Hi Mick, I deleted my COVID app yesterday, even though I did find it very handy, but I'm not going to be spied on by the government as I suspect they're using the COVID app to track people and correlate the information uh, to their PUP payments. Another text just says, this is a cosy cartel government elected by themselves and they're in total power now. They will continue in the future as Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael pick and choose who they go into power with. It's just a total dictatorship and European leaders are aiding and abetting this, says Anthony. Uh, Mick, if I, let my t- if I let two of my dogs bite someone, would that make it okay if I let the third dog do it too? It's wrong, wrong, wrong. It's an extremely bad taste, particularly with so many people out of work. They are already on exorbitant wages plus expenses. There's not one moral compass between the lot of them. Uh, they are pigs with their snouts in the trough. And one final one. Uh, in the last Doyle, when three junior ministers were given extra money, who was the one person who was against it? Michal Martin. Double standards as usual. Uh, and those texts are coming in, and you're welcome to join them on 0868104106. Now back to our phone lines and to Dan on line one. Good morning, Dan. Morning, how are you doing? Good. Now you're responding to a piece in the paper that says half of Irish people don't want black people coming here. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I was explaining uh, to Brenda earlier that I live in Asia and I was saying that, you know, if you were asked the same question uh, of Asian people about black or white people living in Asia, you'd get probably a very similar answer, if not a worse answer. And if you asked the same question of Africans in Africa about white people coming to those African countries, you'd probably get a very similar answer as well. I've had experiences of visiting Africana, um, bad experiences there and and, uh, having lived in Asia for nine years, Going on, starting my tenth year now, I know for a fact that um, there's no question that Korean people would prefer to just have Korean people around them, and that's not to say that they're racist, but they've just identified with them more. Sure, uh, and, and I can understand that, and I also would always advocate that you know we don't have uh, an Indian race, we don't have a Muslim race, we don't have an Irish, we don't have a black race, we don't have a, a, a red race, we don't have a, we have the human race. Uh, and I'm always at a loss uh, where these prejudices come from. I do take your point, uh, you know, that uh, Caucasian Irish people are only now coming to terms with the influx, the potpourri of people, uh, the great mix- mixing pot or melting pot, I suppose, as the song called it, uh, that we've become in this multi-pluralist society. Um, and, and that, you know, yeah. learning that needs, you know, you have to give some consideration that that's hard for people who have spent most of their lives, uh, you know, in, an, in, in a predominantly white, Male, female, Irish situation—it's—it's it's hard, you know. It, it, yeah, but having said that, all of this racism—it's it, not. There's no gene for that. It's—it's it's not a hereditary condition. You have to be taught to disrespect or fear or hate somebody with a different skin pigment color. There's there's no hereditary gene that that passes that on from generation to generation. That has to be instilled in you by those who are teaching you. I couldn't agree more. Um, I just I asked uh, before you, before speaking to you. I begged the question of my sons who are just turned ten and thirteen, and I said to them, "I said, boys, um, there was a, a survey in Ireland, and it said fifty percent or whatever it was fifty one said that uh, they shouldn't let black people or they don't want black people coming into the country." And one of them just turned around and said, "Why?" 
and then the other one the other one said well that's stupid um so you're 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 you know you're bang on um but i you know, having taught kids from a young age, it doesn't paint Irish people or that 50% in a very good light. Um, there's no doubt about it. Um, and I guess in some way I'm trying to defend the Irish. But I do think, certainly in, in the society I'm in here, a, a lot of it is less about racism and it's more about a fear of, 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 of or more of an unknown. Um, and, and they don't know how to react or they don't know what's to come or they're not familiar with another culture or another race and it's not really a full-on racism if you like it's more of just a, a lack of knowledge if you like a lack of education to a point and, and what about white supremacy that seems to be rearing its head now again in the states i thought that was all done done away with in the 60s uh well i don't i couldn't say much about that but uh, I, I wouldn't know enough about it but i think a lot of the politics in the UK and a lot of politics in, in America, it's, it's a bit uh, scaremongering, isn't it? You know, and the UK and the BNP and everyone else are saying, oh, these immigrants are taking your jobs and jobs for English people, for English folk and so on. But like, to me, an English person could be any colour. You know, <laughs> they don't have to be necessarily white. Of course. An English person could be of any, any colour. So, um, and much the same with Irish. Like when you say Irish people, when they've done the survey, how many of those Irish, how many of those people that they surveyed were white Irish born and bred? How many but, of them but, but are before seventy one or seventy three, whatever year we joined the uh, European Economic Community, uh, we were essentially closed off. Not a closed off, but you know, we were predominantly uh, the children of our forebears. Uh, and then the open borders came, and we started to see. You didn't have to travel too far, even as you know, as an Irish person in the seventies. You go to London, you see the multicultural, multicolored. Uh, peoples that exist, 14 million people in London in the great big melting pot. Yeah, completely. I went to Wales in, uh, in 90, good God, when was it, 96. And, you know, 96 isn't that long ago, but there would never have been anyone but uh, a white Irish, if you like, um, in my class, in juniors, in primary school and secondary school. I went to Wales and even Wales, uh, just Cardiff, there was all sorts of different races there. Um, and it, it would open your eyes massively. You know, I'm a, definitely a different person having lived abroad for such a long time. Um, but see, I, I take your point uh, completely. I just think it's a, a lack of understanding, really, a lack, uh, and, and ignorance in some ways. And, and you're saying if you run, run the same survey in any other country, it, it's, it's not going to be so... It's a stark headline. Half of Irish do not want black people coming here. But the anonymity in the replies is what gave the hidden prejudices... Uh, it was, let me, let me see if I can get the figures. Uh, according to research published by the ESRI, when Irish people are asked directly about their views on black people coming to Ireland, 66% support black people coming to Ireland. However, if their answers can remain anonymous, uh, they're not so forthright. They'll drop to 51%. So it really, yeah, it really depends if you're doing an anonymous survey or not. Yeah, it's a stark headline and, and it doesn't paint Irish in a great light. What I'd love to know is how many of those people that were surveyed are actually from Ireland born and bred? How many of them have a, a mother or father that might be from a different country? And then I'd love, to, I'd love them to ask their, if they have kids, their own kids, the same question and see if there's a bias in, in the same way. You know, like, oh, this is what mum's teaching me or this is what dad's teaching me because, you know, it, it comes primarily from the home.
yeah. rather than anywhere else, doesn't it, ultimately? Yeah. Um, and it'd be a great thing to see. But I do maintain that, not in every country, because there are certain countries I would probably suggest places like Holland that are very multicultural. Um, but there are a lot of countries, certainly where I am now, that you would definitely find those figures, if not even higher, um, without question. Okay. Uh, it's um, You're often quite insulated sitting in a studio here, Dennis, as to you know, the effect your words can have on people. But it's just surreal to think that I sat here this morning and read that newspaper headline and you're listening to Red FM on an island of South Korea and you reacted and texted yeah. in. And now we're talking to you and you're in South Korea. What brought you all the way from Mayfield to Jeju Island, South Korea? Um, I was, I left home when I was after the leaving search. And so I was in university in Wales in London. And then I went, I was in other parts of the world for a little while, but not for long, a year or two. And then I was in England for about 10 years. And then just, you know, teaching uh, day to day, doing grand, you know, um, but probably needed a bit, needed a bit more or needed a new challenge. And um just saw this job come up one time to go to an island in Asia um, with a startup school. And um, we came out here and um, nine years on, we're still here. We thought we were coming for three years and then we've just gone year by year and our kids have grown up here. And it's kind of been like the 80s, but with technology. You know, the kids, <laughs> the kids can go out, run around. There's no, in terms of crime rate and you know, it saddens me listening to the radio and those sensationalised, you know, stories and everything. But yes, you you love home and you probably get more patriotic when you leave home and you you want to keep that connection to a point. Um, but uh, my kids have been able to just run around like I we used to leave them outside the door from the age of four or five, and we'd leave the patio open on the apartment. We could hear them maybe from afar. Three hours later, we wouldn't we wouldn't think twice. There would be no fear whatsoever of anything happening to them whatsoever. How old are they then? Now they're 13 and uh, just turned 10. Okay. And living on an island of South Korea, um, you're teaching English there. How, how are they educated? In what language? Um, I'm teaching PE in sports science, and they go to school that's... So it's an international school, but okay. all the lessons are Korean, Mandarin, Latin, and whatever the languages are in English. So they're in a school with 90, 97% Koreans, and they're the 3%. So they are <laughs> they are definitely outnumbered. So they're, they're, they're the people who, sh- you know, who don't fit in, shouldn't fit in, but actually do fit in. Oh, they, do, they, they don't fit in to a point, and they do a little bit. We, we do see elements of... They're out. They're not. There's no racist. There's no racism there. Don't get me wrong, but they're definitely outsiders to a point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're they're different. So they're, we see that they look a little so, different than the natives. I imagine skin yeah, skin color. There's not any blonde hair, blue eye boys <laughs> over here in our school. So uh, they're one of the. Two, they're two of the maybe ten. And you intend to stay there long term? Um. Well, we're getting you getting to this age, you know, you, you read things and been away so long. My wife's English and I'm Irish and the lads are, I call them Irish, but as any Irish person would, but effectively are half-half if you like. Um, but they're getting the, the older one 13 now, so as soon as he gets to 15, 16, 17, I'd like them to have some kind of... Um, relationship with home a little bit more. Um, Maybe university here? 
Yeah, and you have to be home three. You have to be home in Ireland, or if it was if it happened to be England for them, um, they'd have to be home three years prior to going to university. Otherwise, they pay international fees. Okay, and that's definitely a no-no. Right. Okay. So you may be home sooner than you think. You listen to Red FM a day to, to keep up with things. I hope we're keeping you informed. Oh, you certainly are. You certainly are. And I do, I do worry, like, you know, I, the, the whole COVID thing, you know, we say, I hear on the radio the second wave. But, like, from my perspective, there is no second wave. It's still the first wave. It's the first over. wave, yeah. No. S- s- still the um, first wave, maybe improperly managed. Yeah, and if you start thinking about it as the second wave, then, then you're already on a loss as far as I'm concerned, you know. Um, it's, there's, over here, they treat it very differently. You know, uh, if the government say you should wear a mask, you'd be damn sure everyone's going to wear a mask. There's no my constitutional rights, my this, my that. It's, oh, well, we should wear a mask. We should all pull together and we need to take care of each other. But in Italy um, and, and, and France and other European countries, the government came out very early with the directive, everyone should wear a mask. And on that basis, we will open up the hospitality, the bars, the theatres and the restaurants, and we'll open up the economy. And so on that basis, and that's the price you pay for progress, everybody wore a mask. But here and in the UK, it's dithering and changing and uh, masks are important now, but they weren't then. You know, um, in in the UK, I think it's, uh, yeah, masks are going to be mandatory, but they won't be for two weeks. I mean, come on. Yeah, I I think the Irish government personally were, because I'm I'm living a a parallel, almost like a parallel life where I'm I'm seeing things happening and, and evolve in Asia while I'm listening to the radio and, uh, at home and I'm worried about my mom and dad and family sure. and everyone and you're seeing how it's happening there as well and you know we, I say we in Korea because I feel like a small percentage of me is part Korean if you like we've had six deaths in per million of population as opposed to uh, Ireland that's had over one and a half thousand now I, I, like we've had people come in from well, New that's, Zealand that's one and a half thousand per, uh, per 4.5 million I think is it, is it a different, different, different comparison? Population. Yeah, but it's still huge uh, compared to what you've had. Oh, it's insane. Like, we've had a total of uh, just over 360 deaths in total with a population of uh, 52 of something, between 50 and 55 million. And people coming from New Zealand, where there's been no internal cases, have to quarantine in a hotel when they arrive. Wow. But everything's running. I can go to a coffee shop today. I can come out, go to the next coffee shop. I can go and eat in a restaurant. Like, Ireland, Ireland's an island. Close bloody doors. Open the pubs. Open the restaurants. Let everyone go everywhere. Holiday in your own country. Take care of your, take care of your country and your people. And, you know, the, the economy will move somewhat, at least. Not, not to the degree you want it, but it'll move a little bit. Yes, the, the uh, Jacinta Ardern way, the New Zealand way. Yeah, that's that's been unbelievable. I, I watch a lot of rugby, and they, they've had forty-five, forty thousand people at uh, a rugby match. They haven't had that for wow. almost thirteen years. Wow! All right, listen, it's great to talk to you. Uh, I've never heard of the island, but I must look it up. Jeju, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Jeju. Yeah, Jeju Do. Jeju Do, yeah. island off South Korea. We speak to people in interesting places, then that one takes the biscuit for me for the week, anyway. So well done, and thanks for reacting to the uh, newspaper story this morning. Great to talk to you. Thanks very much. Want to say easy. hi to anyone in Mayfield there before you go? Oh, just my mum and dad, and uh, my sisters and brothers. Okay, give, give us their names. Oh, uh, Mary, Henry, Christopher, Charlene, Sinead, and of course all the kids. Okay, long distance request. Great to talk to you, Dan. Thanks, Emil.
Cheers. So Cheers. Much. Thanks. Bye-bye. 22 minutes after 11. Now back in a moment. Talk to Neil Prinderville now. 1851-04106. Red FM. And a very good morning to you. This is Mick Mulcahy. It's always nice to catch up with someone on the programme because I do it so seldom uh, that I spoke to you before. So looking forward now to speaking to Effie Murphy. Uh, good morning, Effie. It's great to talk to you again. I think we've got to have a good old update here. How are you doing? Hi, Mick. How are you? Very good. Now, let me go back to your story. You told how you have been denied a visa uh, and yeah. described as a health hazard because of your size gave you the determination to lose £100. Uh, you weighed 21 stone 12 when you applied for your entry to New Zealand but was refused because of your, quote, dangerous weight, unquote. So that was June 2019, just over a year ago. And the reality was uh, a reality, for uh, I think, that so many others carrying weight can relate to both male and female. So for years you had a food addiction, uh, maybe a little, suffered a little from depression and didn't care thus how you looked because you were comfort eating. Uh, and I leave it here, leave it to take up the story, but I'm just drawn to one line uh, in, in your story. Three babies later, everything went south. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> everything went south. Take uh, it from there. So, um, yeah, at that stage, uh, I was totally depressed sitting at home in my pyjamas with the windows closed the curtains were closed um, I just didn't care didn't care about about anything really um, didn't want to go out outside with the kids just wanted to stay at home and I said enough was enough I just I had to do something about my weight and for years I had researched weight loss surgery and obviously I could never afford it it was um, it was really expensive in Ireland but I came across a hospital in Turkey in Turkey called Ermet and um, uh, for for me to have my weight loss surgery there it was only 3,000 euros whereas in Ireland it would have cost 12 to 15,000 euros so um, I researched and I was talking to patients that was there um, and I decided to just bite the bullet and go um, so I flew to Turkey by myself um, on the 27th of June last year mm-hmm. and had my weight loss surgery on the 28th of June how risky um, is that surgery, Effie? Well, I mean, any surgery is risky. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, if you research your surgery um, and who your surgeon is in the hospital that you're going to, that you're not going to a clinic and things like that. You have some comfort. I mean, yeah. Exactly, you know. And, um, I mean, the hospital that I was in, it's a huge hospital with an A&E department, maternity ward, dental clinic. It's huge. Um, so I knew it was the right place for me. What was the so, surgery um, called? Is this gastric sleeve surgery? It's gastric sleeve, so it's where they remove um, almost eighty percent of your stomach, um, and they um, so they're like cutting your stomach off, but uh, closing it at the same time. So you're left with a little pouch, um, and that then restricts you from eating. Okay, because you're physically yeah. full very quickly. Yeah. So what, um, while they're doing the surgery, they're actually cutting away the hunger gland as well. So you're never hungry um, with the surgery, um, which is great. I, I always <laughs> wonder, and, and and it's just out of pure naivety because I don't know anything about medical procedures or anything like that. I always wonder then how how that doesn't eventually starve you to death. No, it doesn't. No, <laughs> a lot of people think that. Um, no, you, well, with the surgery, you're given a dietitian as well, so she's in contact with you all the time. Um, so, like, a year later for me, I was actually back at the, the hospital and speaking with my dietitian. So we're now on a weight management programme where I'm keeping the weight that I am on now at the moment so I don't drop any more weight, which is great. Okay. And how safe was it to lose so much so quickly? You're talking about a year, really, aren't you? In a year, yeah. So within the year, I was down 10 stone, 6 pounds. Um, 
I mean, it is really safe. Um, the only thing is you're left with a lot of excess skin if you're like me and had a lot of weight to lose. Um, so I was I was much healthier in myself, obviously, because I've dropped the weight. So the pre-diabetic stage was gone um, and all things like that. Um, but then... I've I've oh, seen I've seen TV shows, Effie. Um, forgive me though if I offend you in any way. Um, where the excess skin actually looks worse than the excess weight. Um, yeah, in some cases it can be. I mean, it depends on uh, your own body yourself. Uh, for me, I carried all my weight in my belly. So, I mean, I was having the excess skin in my belly um, under the folds, I suppose, really of where I had carried the children and I had the mommy tummy. Um, so for me, I was having the skin rashes and things like that where I knew I needed to have the skin removed eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I rebooked and I flew over only what, the 10th tenth, the tenth of this month, no, the 6th of this month. So I'm, I'm literally just after my surgery now. How did that go? It went fantastic. Um, they removed 15 pounds of skin and then I had an extra pound of liposuction taken away as well. Um, and I'm feeling great. I'm relaxing here now in my bed at the moment. <laughs> can, can I ask you to regress back to the time when you would eat for every single emotion, the addiction? Can you describe that to me? Yeah, you know, it was just awful. I didn't care. I mean, I didn't count any calories. I didn't do anything like that. So I'd just get up and eat whatever I want, whenever I wanted. Um, made me feel great at the time. Um, any emotions at all. If I was happy, I'd eat. If I was sad, I'd eat. Um, it's almost like a reward yeah, mechanism or a defense mechanism. It really was, you know. I, like food was all I knew. And um, I mean, any parties, the first thing I do is go straight to the food. Um it was just a complete addiction and I didn't realise how bad it was until I realised when I started the journey to lose the weight how bad it has actually got. Tell, um, tell me what happened in Disneyland. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to Disneyland a couple of years ago and we usually kind of go yearly with the kids um, and I went up on this ride and I got stuck in the ride and it was the most embarrassing thing in my life. Um so yeah, I got stuck there. There was queues trying to get on, and I couldn't get off. I was a good ten minutes trying to get out of it. The queues backing but, up, um, and you physically couldn't get yourself out of the ride. I just couldn't. It was like sitting into a bath was the only way to describe it. So I had to use my arms to lift myself out, but I was just too heavy. I just couldn't lift myself out of the ride. And um, so after I lost all the weight, I took the kids back to Disneyland last year, and. Um, I said, you know what, now I'm going to try this ride again, even though I hated the fact that I had to get into it. I'd done it for the kids. And we went around and it was grand and it was time to get back off the ride. And I got out of the ride and my little man, he's only five, Ollie, and he turned around and he goes, in front of everybody, he was like, look, ma'am, you're not fat anymore. And I was like, oh, my God. But yeah. So this whole procedure, you, you, you went to Turkey carrying cash, was it? You went to Istanbul with three grand in cash. I did, yeah. Is, is, that, the, is that the way you pay over there? Well, you can pay it um, with card, but there's an extra charge for paying it uh, with your card. So it kind of works out cheaper to carry the cash. Okay. But I mean, in the back of your mind, you are getting on a flight with a load of cash in your hand. That's what I was thinking, security into, reasons. In- yeah, the security of it all. But um, for me, like I was traveling by myself and I was getting on the flight with the cash. I was getting into a taxi with somebody I didn't know on the other side in Turkey with the cash. And in the back of your head, that's all you're thinking. But... I mean, it was the most safest journey I've ever had. I I never felt so relaxed once I met them when I got there. And it, like for me, it was life-changing, to be honest. Six days later, you were cleared to fly home. So that's kind of a short turnaround time. That's right, yeah. And how, did you, get used to, how did you get used to not eating so much? If you loved food so much, how, how did yeah, you get... So like, like, now you can't even finish a starter portion, I imagine. No, I can't. Um, 
So I suppose really it's all in the mind and um, there's a thing called dumping syndrome with the surgery so it kind of teaches you your limit of how much you can have um, so if you overeat or if you try to overeat you kind of get this pain in your chest and it kind of lets you know like that's it you can't go anymore wow. <laughs> so um, which is great and um, yeah a year later I still have my restriction thank God and um, it's going good you've lost over 100 pounds you currently weigh 14 stone 13 I actually weigh less now. Less? Okay, yeah. maybe, maybe yeah. I'm reading an old report. 11.8 8. Oh, well done, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's half, so, um, that's half your original body weight. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've done well now, thank God. Wow, okay. So your goal, when, in this old article I'm reading, it was 12 stone on the scales, and now you've passed that's that as right. well. You haven't been that weight since you were 14 years old. No, not at all. I can't even, like, begin to describe how unreal it is. Um... And I, I don't want to drop any more weight now. I'm really happy as I am. So it's just a matter of trying to maintain it now at the moment. And wouldn't you like to be eating a bit more now, but you can't? I would love to. I Don't even get me wrong. I, I got the kids a Chinese last night and um, I got myself a three-in-one and I had about three or four forks of it and it's just left there. So like things like that, um, it does get annoying, you know, when you're trying to go out and eat or if you get to take away with the kids, you just you just can't finish it. Mm-hmm. Now, in a way, it's great for me because I st- obviously I still have the food addiction that will never go away. So to have, you know, that restriction in place for me, it's really good. Okay. Uh, you have a couple of more procedures. Uh, tummy tuck coming. Uh, what's a mummy makeover? Yeah, so I'm just back from them. I had them done. Um, so a mummy makeover basically is taking away the mummy pouch that you have in your stomach um, and a, a breast augmentation as well. Okay. Um, and then I also had an arm lift surgery, so they took away my bingo wings. <laughs> bingo, yeah. I, um, that, that's where a lot, lot of the excess skin comes around the, under the arms. I think especially in ladies, is that right? That's right, Yeah. Um, and I suppose it depends on where you carry your weight as well. I mean, a lot of uh, ladies have it in their bums and their thighs, and I was kind of lucky. I just carried all mine in my in my stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I had all that done and uh, had dental work done as well while I was there. So that's why I'm speaking with a little lisp at the moment. How much did all this cost? <laughs> um, well, obviously, I'm not going to go out and tell everyone my finances. Oh no, no, <laughs> but like, I mean? is, is, is it is it ten grand? Is it five grand? Is it? Uh, it's definitely not ten grand, anyways. Okay. Um, it's really it is, it is really cheap to go to Turkey, um, and I mean if you contact the hospital directly, they can give you a personal quote. Um, the only reason I say that is because everybody is different and they carry their weight in different ways. And so, if some person would have more skin to take off than what I would have, you know. So they're and as well with their health, um, they might have some complications and they might need extra surgeries or whatever. So it would work out. A different and of course, we we're them. we're open to uh, I suppose we're open to contradiction here now by the Irish Medical Board or whatever or anyone working in the medical mm-hmm. industry in Ireland who probably advocate that you don't leave the country uh, yeah. you know, and stay here where you're going to get better care as they'll say. So that was your personal mm-hmm. decision to go to Turkey. Oh, it was definitely a personal decision, yeah. And I think the fact that I was there last year and I knew exactly what I was travelling over to um, that it wasn't just one of those cheap clinics that people talk about going to Turkey um, so I knew exactly what I was going to and I knew my surgeon was fantastic. I'd done research in that and spoke to clients and patients that had already been there, which was great. Um, and I've had no complications. I'm here now recovering at home with the kids and it's great. Perfect. And why why did you need Slimming World then? Slimming World has been, oh my God, I, um, I must have joined Slimming World five or six times. And I, like any woman, they'll, they'll join, they'll leave, they'll go back, <laughs> you know. Um 
since I've had the surgery, I, I rejoined Slimming World and they have been the most amazing support. It's like, um, the only way I can describe it is I have a food addiction and you have an alcoholic and they go to their AA meetings. But for me, Slimming World would be my AA meeting, you know. Absolutely. It's like, um, they teach me how to cook more healthier and the support from my group and y'all with Carol is just fantastic. Like she knew exactly what uh, vitamin tablets I needed to take after my bariatric surgery, which I did not expect at all. Um, and she, she knew, you know, the size portions that I had and what would be the best options for me, like with protein and things like that. So I 100% recommend Slim and World. Okay, and and I, I have friends who have also done very well there. Do you, do you offer support to other people who are doing their research or can they contact you or is there a blog or a Instagram or something? Yeah, so um, I'm on Instagram. I don't work for anybody, just putting it out there. I'm just um, I'm just offering support to anybody that's looking for information. Um, so I'm on Instagram and just follow Effie's journey. Okay, a friend of mine, Paul O'Donoghue, has just texted me to say I've lost 80 pounds in seven months watching my diet. Uh, also, I think a big, big advocate of Slimming World uh, and making choices that are right for me. And thank God my biggest fear didn't happen. No excess skin. So congratulations, Paula O'Donoghue. That's fantastic. Well done. Fantastic. Well done. All right, guys. Um, to all who are listening who are trying to lose weight, I could do it a bit of it myself. Um, but uh, your story is inspirational, Effie. You seem to be mentally vibrant and you're you're really happy you made the decision. Can I venture that the New Zealand government saying you're not coming in because you're morbidly obese was possibly the best yeah. thing that ever happened to you? It definitely was. You know, I was standing in the doctor's office and he turned around and it's when I heard you're morbidly obese, it, that's when it clicked. And I was like, I knew I was fat. I just needed someone to confirm it. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, it was uh, definitely the turning point and definitely the start of the journey, yeah. 12-month journey, great for your mental health, great for the way you look, uh, obviously great for the way you feel. How do you feel now as a woman? Strange question for me to ask, like, but do you, feel, um, you start yeah, to feel I more feminine now? It's, it's actually a, a weird question, to be honest with you. I started off 21-12, I'm 11-8 now today, and I still feel like the same person I was when I started the journey. Um, I might look a little bit different, um, but for me... The whole thing for me was the mental journey. Um, so my mental health is so much better. Like I'm out every day. I'm enjoying life with my kids. I go to the park. We go for walks on the beach. The curtains are open, which is the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, mentally for me, the whole thing um, has been fantastic. But when I look at myself um, in the mirror, I still see the old person. I still see, you know, the girl that has issues. But, you know, that will change hopefully in time. Okay. Uh, Effie Murphy from you all. Once again, great to catch up with you and, and great to close out the story as a sense. I guess we'll talk to you again when uh, there's a little bit more of the journey maybe that you're taking. Maybe you're nine-tenths there. Uh, and I guess yeah. we, we will speak to you again because it's, it's an uplifting story to anyone who's, who's trying to address their weight issues. Thanks very much again mm-hmm. for touching base with us, Effie. Thanks a million, Mick. Thanks, Thanks a million. Cheers. Bye-bye. 20 minutes to 12 now. The Neil Prendival Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 1850-104-106. And just before we go back to our phone lines, I had a personal text from a publican friend of mine. I'm not sure if he wanted his name or his pub called out, so I better not do it just in case. Uh, but here's what he says anyway, uh, because he did hear me talking about uh, going for my first beer last week uh, and uh, sitting down away from the bar, not able to touch the bar, etc. Uh, and he says, I'm opening Mick on the 10th of August. Restrictions or no restrictions. People just need to use common sense coming into the pub. It's a small pub. So if they're worried about social distancing, stay at home or go to a bigger pub. Five months is long enough to be closed. Without being told, you can only open for 50% capacity. Thanks again, Mick, and your first pint is on me at the counter. 
<laughs> so there you go. I won't mention the pub just in case he didn't want it mentioned. Let's go to line one and John Byrne. Hi, John. Good morning. Now, Croke Park is going to host the next major event in the Muslim calendar. Uh, which is Eid al-Aya, if I'm pr- pronouncing it correct, or the Festival of Sacrifice. This That's is correct. one of the most important festivals in the Muslim calendar. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about it? Well, I find it amazing that uh, Crow Park have rented out Crow Park uh, for this, uh, where there will be uh, 500 people at least. Uh, now, the, the year have said that they have a guarantee that there will be no animals slaughtered in Crow Park and that there will be no drinking. Well, allegedly they don't drink, but I presume that the animals will be slaughtered in another location uh, outside of it. But if if uh, people can't get tickets to go to county games and because of uh, the crowd uh, numbers, why can uh, Crow Park rent out? Uh, <clears throat> uh, why can the GA rent out Crow Park for this? I, mm-hmm. ima- I imagine, John, because you're allowed to gather with up to 500 people in an outdoor setting, they'll probably be on the pitch. Yeah. And I would imagine that the GAA are making some effort towards social inclusion is why they're doing it. Oh, but what if they get about social inclusion, oh, Mick? What about social inclusion for our own when they can't? There was, there was a report on yesterday, I heard it after the three o'clock news on red, that a guy that was following um, the claim for 60 years couldn't go to a game because he couldn't get a ticket because the numbers were, were restricted. What, what about his rights? Yeah, but the GAR, by their self-professed uh, advertising, is saying we're oh, yeah, back yeah, where, yeah. where we all belong. Yeah, yeah, but hold on a while. Oh, the GAA is run by, by, by government funding, which is public money, and, to, and is run on the, on the uh, bums, butts and seats by the people who pay to go in. And all of a sudden, they can't go to a game because uh, of, of, of a, a restriction. But uh, other people can avail of the same uh, service and with no restriction. There has to be something something wrong. Now, the, the thing is, who sanctioned this and when was it sanctioned? Well, the GAA President John Horan, I, I only read about this today, it's new to me, but the GAA President John Horan <laughs> has said that staging the celebration at Croke Park shows the association's commitment to inclusion and its belief that it is, quote, where we all belong, unquote. I know. <laughs> no, this, this is a this is a, a poor a poor player by having it above there. We've had Irish people that were shot above there by an occupying force, and we have the remnants of of old Dublin that was blown up by them above in Hill Sixteen. Well, that's nothing to do with the Muslims, John. But, no. uh, yeah, but hold on a while. If if our own can't go up to avail of the service, why should anybody else be allowed to go? No, up to well, I, I think what John Horne is saying is that anybody within reason is allowed to rent out the facility. But now whether two teams travelling uh, to play in Croke Park, will, in, whether that's financially viable at 500 tickets is another question. But you're, okay. So why, why wasn't, why wasn't uh, it put to the clubs and let them decide if they could uh, uh, help out with, with funding or whatever? Listen, there's too much going on in this country and it's coming in at the wrong end. Our owner, our owner being uh, pushed back down the whole time. Because we can't do this and we can't say that and whatever. They have a right to go to a game, to a club game or to go to whatever game they have. Now, if Parky Creeve isn't big enough to get 500 or 1,000 people in to watch a game, how can Cork Park be big enough to take, to take a festival? Mm-hmm. No, uh, we had enough problems. We had enough problems now with the GAA when we all tried to support Liam, Liam Miller uh, fundraiser. And it was only public opinion that turned against the GAA that got permission for Liam Miller to benefit to go on. 
and uh, we're back to square one now again. Our one are being put in the back stool again, and everybody else can go go ahead of them. Yeah, Dr. Umar Al Quadri of the Irish Muslim Peace and Integration Council has said the choice of Croke Park will be symbolic to Irish Muslims in their dual identity as being both Irish and Muslim. So these are Irish people coming in. You're saying you're saying we should keep it for our own. These are Irish Muslims coming no, no, to use Croke no, Park. No. What I'm saying is. We should all be playing on, on the same rules. If the Irish can't go up to a game, nobody else should be going up there. But 500, only, 500 I, I, Irish can if the, if the game is, is, is deemed financially viable or, or you know, viable to go uh, ahead. Uh, yeah, but tell me so. Uh, what exactly was the payout so for GA? For, uh, I've, I've no idea how much they rent Croke Park for. But yeah, but, yeah but, but this is the thing. This is the questions we need to ask. They're being funded by the government out of taxpayers' money and by Irish people sitting on seats at the games. Okay, hang on a second there, John. Dr. Amanola de Sondi, uh, another person we've spoken to before uh, on the programme, is the head of the department and senior lecturer in contemporary Islam in UCC. Good morning, Dr. Amanola. Good morning, how are you? I'm very good. Now, you're saying people don't understand what the festival is about. It's a festival of sacrifice, am I correct? That's right. I mean, you know, <laughs> this is, I think this is getting blown out of proportion Um and it's interesting that um, today when a, a report has said that there's, you know, there's already um, uh, a, a misunderstanding of Muslims, there's a fear of Muslims coming into Ireland. I think the statistic was saying that about 51% would only be happy or, um, for Muslims coming into Ireland. No, it was, uh, that, that, that was on, uh, and I read the report, a study, half of Irish do not want black people coming here. It, I don't think it referred yes, to Muslims at all. It does. It does actually refer to Muslims, particularly if you. If oh, you there's a, the there's report, a different report uh, on a different percentage. Let, let, let me just clarify that. Uh, the report found that among people with a third le- level education, 27% do not support black people coming to Ireland but conceal it, and 22% conceal negativity towards Muslims coming to Ireland. That's right. So, so part of the problem is that I think people are are don't. Uh, are not understanding what Islam and Muslims are or what they believe in. We've been bombarded for far too long with very, very negative portrayals of Islam and Muslims. When you when you embed into the psyche of an individual that Islam is a religion of war, Islam is a religion of killing and jihad and all of this, it will inevitably mean that people will have very, very clear ideas of what that is. But let's now, be clear, Islam is a religion of peace. Well, look, you know, let's let's be a little bit um, measured here. You know, a religion can be whatever you want it to be. We don't judge Christianity based on the Crusades. And so in the same way, we don't judge a religion based on something that's purely negative. Right. Let's let's all be on the same page there. The problem is that we've had so many negative portrayals that have been presented about Muslims, and it has affected the way in which people have understood the religion. There's a sm- of course, I'm not saying to, to go one way or the other, not to say that Islam is purely a religion of peace or to say that Islam is a purely a religion of terror. What we need is we need a more measured, we need to see the religion in its fullest picture, in exactly the same way that we don't judge the Catholic Church on abuse. Sorry, let me finish for a second, please. Just, just a moment, judge the Catholic Church on on abuses. We understand that the Catholic Church has done a lot of wonderful things on liberation theology, for example, in South America. So we look at the panoply, we look at the colours, we look at the differences. 
That is not being extended to Islam and Muslims. This is very unfortunate and it's having a real life effect on the relationship between the Irish and Muslims. Okay, Dr. Amalillo, just, 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 just for a moment, I don't think John Byrne came on the radio to discuss the merits or, you know, the, the pros and cons of Catholicism or whatever religion versus, versus Islam and Muslim. Um, but I just want, I just want to ask to go doctor there. Uh, in the Quran, uh, it tells you that uh, Islam is the only true religion. And that's, uh, at, at some stage, if you don't uh, wake up and, and become uh, a Muslim, that's, uh, you have no work. Now, we also have a problem with uh, female genital mutilation that's going on sorry, within... I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stop you there because these are, once again, you're pulling out, you're, you're, you're distorting... Yes. You're no, I'm not. It does, many, does many it, ideas. Please let me finish it, for a second. Do, no, no. Like does, it, does, it, you, yes no. does it say that in the Quran? Does the Quran say that? Yes or no. Just as I'm saying, to you, no, like Quran, yes, yes no. Just as I'm saying to you, we do not judge our ideas of Christianity based on blood no, no, to say. No. We no, also not, should I, not extend uh, the same criteria and logic and rationality to Islam and Muslims. If you but, do that, there's a weakness in your I argument. You, there's a weakness asked, in trying to answer that. I asked you a question. I asked you a question. I asked you a question. Please answer the question. Does the Quran say that, yes or no? Does the Quran say what? Any other faith is non-existent, that they're walkers. No, no, I'm sorry. You, you know, these are very deeply theological issues. And I'm sorry, you're also not understanding the fact that, the, for one example, the Catholic Church in the 60s, through a papal bull, right, so, sorry, uh, through, through the Nostra Aetate Agreement, which was Second Vatican Council, made a move towards other faith and it made a very clear statement that it was moving towards and the relationships with Islam and Muslims. John and Dr. Amanullah, can I bring you back on track here? Because look, I, 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 I respectfully venture that an eye for an eye here is going to make the whole world go blind. John came on because people can't get tickets for a Glen Rovers match. So can you, can you explain what the festival is going to be about in Croke Park? The absolute core, I'm sorry, but I think I'm bringing you back to the key point. The key point here is that there is a lot of misinformation there's a lot of misinformation about Islam and Muslims. And all the other parts of people aren't being able to do this. And people, It's all the noise. It's all so, the fudge that's being presented. So, and the core of the issue is the way in which Islam and Muslims are being understood. So are, are you saying, Dr. Amanala de Sunday, that if this, if this was a Catholic, say, Corpus Christi procession, that there wouldn't be any sort of uproar about it whatsoever? I'm not... I, 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 look, I think... Every faith should have the ability in the current situation as best as it can and they are upholding whatever the, the, the government uh, requirements are. That's what it is. But I'm not entirely convinced. I'm not entirely convinced that all of this criticism that is being presented is part of that. Part of this criticism is, and today's research shows, and the research is very clear, that there is a lot of anxiety and stress and hate towards Islam and Muslims. This is on the rise in Europe. This is on the rise in Ireland. That must be addressed. And let's stop but trying to pretend that it's other but, issues. But, but, John, John, can I put it to you that a, a peaceful Muslim festival should be allowed to take place in Croke Park? 
They, the venue is, is, is rentable. They're renting yeah, it. They will be abiding by the requests, I imagine, of the GAA that no animals are slaughtered. It'll be a peaceful festival. They're paying for the venue. Well, why not let it go yeah. ahead? Yeah, Pro- provided that the same facilities would be open to us to go to a game. But they are for 500 people. No, no, the GA won't, the GA won't uh, let it go because they're not getting enough money out they're of it. They're not getting enough money, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but the game should be going on in respect of the money. The, the government are already, listen, Croke Park cost about $400 million, to the best of my the best of my knowledge, out of government money. Which and and, and they defray money. that cost by renting the facility to Garth Brooks if he was allowed to play, yes. uh, to, yes. to, to Michael Jackson yes. if he was alive, whoever. A- at, at, absolutely, but... This is our national sport. We have a right to go to it. And just because people are not working or for some reason or whatever, that they can't afford to go, the GA should be able to suffer the loss and hold the games and leave the people into the games. Okay, I think we we have two disparate arguments here uh, looking for uh, a platform. But Dr. Aminola de Sunday, Head of Department and Senior Lecturer in Contemporary Islam at UCC, uh, people don't understand what the festival is about. Can you tell me in 20 seconds, what's the festival about? This it, 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 it is a festival, it is a religious ceremony in order for Muslims to get closer to God. There are many, there are, there are Muslims who sacrifice animals and they distribute that meat to the poor. But there are also some, there are vegan Muslims, there are vegetarian Muslims. It is a celebration where Muslims are trying to get closer to God. It is the exact same God. It is a, it, it, it is a, it is an extension of biblical monotheism that runs from Judaism to Christianity to Islam. And the problem is that there's a lot of very hateful people in Ireland, a small minority who are trying to get this into a, a different direction. All right. And Dr. Amanella Sunday, Head of Department and Senior Lecturer in Contemporary Islam and UCC. And John, thank you for coming on and making your point as well. Uh, we're bang out of time. My thanks to our senior producer, Brenda Dennehy, and to Seamus Whelan and Mark uh, uh, Willington, who so ably produced the programme make it such a pleasure to present. We have News at 12 midday on the way. Talk to you tomorrow after News at 9. Thanks for listening to this Red FM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out redextra.ie for more great Red FM content.